Welcome back to the Poor Pearls Almanac. This is Andy, and today we have our longest episode to date. We're joined by the one and only Chris Newman of Silvanaqua Farms to discuss everything and anything around small-scale agriculture and cooperative business models. We jump into what sustainable ag looks like both for landscapes and also for labor, and we discuss lessons learned around building resilient food systems based on his experiences. Further, we explore some of the more nuanced discussions around food, decolonization, land back, permaculture, and much more. This was a really fun and insightful conversation, which is also why it ended up being over two hours. It's a rare opportunity to chat with someone like Chris, who has a diversity of unique experiences in this space and the willingness to dive into the messier parts. Now, if you're in the D.C. area, go check out Sylvan Aqua Farms and their available food. If you find his work inspiring, support their mutual aid program to feed people in their community. That all said, take a listen. Let us know what you think. Sylvan Aqua Farms started about 10 years ago, actually almost exactly 10 years ago, as a diversified livestock ranch in the model of, say, Polyface Farm. We spent about 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, we spent about five years trying to do it the traditional small farm, farm to table kind of way and just realized the math doesn't pencil out if you're not born with an inheritance, with a bunch of land, with a market, if you're not using free labor. Couple minor things, yeah. Small, fundamentally <laughs> broken things. <laughs> So we, we kind of came to the realization uh, around 2017, 2018, something like that, that we had to try to do something different. And so yada, yada, fast forward a, a, few, uh, a few years, we've gotten to the point where we realized that we need to do things more cooperatively. Things need to look more like a business. There's like a big, I don't know, it's weird. Like it, there's like a pro-business but anti-business thing that, that runs in the farm to table movement, especially among like the Joel Salatin cohort. Like he calls himself a capitalist, but he very much behaves like the recipient of just the best kind of socialism. But we won't go over that yet. So we needed to treat things more, be more business-like, uh, specialize more, scale more, take more advantage of the programs that are out there to help farms succeed, that a lot of the farm to table food sovereignty get away from the government kind of culture says that you shouldn't. So so we kind of realized that a, a lot of making farming and more broadly food sovereignty work is going to require us to go against a lot of the culture that is built up in this space. And it's a hard thing to do. So today, the Sylvan Aqua Farms is slowly becoming less and less of a farm. Uh, we started out with, I mean, we did everything, man. Like I, I baked bread and sold that stuff in nail salons. <laughs> I mean, I was hustle, man. Like I was doing eggs. I was doing like small scale veg. I was doing broilers. I had pigs. I've had cattle. Um, I've done just about everything, but guinea fowl at this point. How much do you hate your neighbors? Uh, you know, it was a big spot, so they didn't really wow. see it. Well, I was going to say, get the <laughs> guinea fowl in there if they're annoying you. Exactly. That's what I've heard. I, I don't, I don't want to know because <laughs> nothing that I've heard has been good about, about the damn things. But today we are like our specific farm just runs broiler chickens, egg laying hens, everything on pasture. And we also background cattle as a actually that's kind of how we're partially conventional egg, which is another thing that get, kind of gets poo-pooed on. But in terms of the farm table food sovereignty stuff, it's it's broiler chickens is kind of where we've decided to specialize. 
And going into next year, you know, we, you know, this year we've kind of piloted a cooperative with two other farms, um, one in Palmyra, one outside of Charlottesville, both about two hours away from us, where they're concentrating more on the growing and I'm doing the processing and marketing and selling. And as we move on and as I get older, because I, I turned 41 this year, you know, I'm, I'm not a kid anymore. I'm only going to get older. Pulling broiler tractors gets old. Um, so we're going to be turning that over to a young man's game and then trying to create a career path where you go from if you're in your 20s, maybe you're pulling broiler tractors. When you're in your 40s and 50s, maybe you're, I don't know, you're teaching other farmers, you're helping run the marketing, you're part of the design of a co-op or whatever. But we're going to be at the point next year where we're hardly doing any farming at all. We're we're just processing here in our shop. We're packing. We're doing food safety stuff. We're trying to scale up our ability to process what other farmers grow so we can create this ecosystem where people who want to be farmers, especially these young, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed people who, who want to get into it, and then they wind up getting kind of kicked in the ass by the market, which is brutal. They have somewhere where they can not only sell their stuff, but also have a pathway to becoming an owner in that. So they don't just become kind of like the standard tournament system poultry operator where it's like, okay, I'm going to sell stuff to Smithfield and boy, I hope they don't just tell me to piss off one day. Um, So that's where we're at. It's an exciting place. It's worked out so far with some obvious giant hiccups uh, on the way. I've got more free time and higher quality of life than I've had at any time in the last decade that I've been doing this. Um, So I feel like we're we're really on the right track here. That's awesome. We kind of took opposite paths in this space i when i was younger i was in greenhouse veg start production nonprofits, like all that stuff and then i got burnt out of it went back to school for accounting because i was like what is the thing that pays the most money after doing this for a number of years but i've always cared about it been passionate about it which is kind of part of where this came from uh and you kind of went the opposite direction you went from the tech side and was like i'm tired of this i don't care what it pays and basically said i'm gonna go do a 20 year old's job and throw my back out and all that fun stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, di- I didn't get as busted up as a lot of people I know. Um, but yeah, I was I was in tech. So I did 10 years in tech. Seems like I've got a 10 year lifespan for like anything I do. Um, so I was in tech, started at like big evil. I was at Lockheed Martin doing stuff with the security clearance that I still can't talk about. <laughs> got tired of that, moved to, in- well, <laughs> increasingly smaller, kind of an oxymoron, uh, increasingly small companies. Uh, until I wound up at the point where I was at kind of a tech consulting startup. So I was like half engineer, half management consultant, half like IT director. It was a weird and impossibly stressful job to be in. And uh, it started to literally kill me. Like I had symptoms of friggin' maybe stomach cancer, maybe colon cancer, maybe both. Who the hell knows? And I was like 29 years old. And, uh, at, you know, I'd, I'd always done... A lot of agriculture-related stuff in terms of my tribe, so teaching people how agricultural systems work here and and more broadly how the social political systems um, with indigenous people held themselves up before uh, before contact, before the invasion. So the agriculture part of that really spoke to me, and I I got heavily involved in that uh, right towards when my old career started to come to a head. So I figured, what if I could do this for a living? And what sucks is the only person that was really talking at that time, which was like, when was that? 2012, 2011, something like that. Only people that really had a mic that were talking about stuff like you could be a farmer for a living were people like Joel freaking Saladin. The, a lot of the people that we listen to today just weren't around 10 years ago. So, so yeah, and I went with my mouth wide open. 
and uh, you know, wild ride on the Dunning Kroger curve, and, and here we are now. But yeah, it, it was yeah. I, I went from tech and into farming, and frankly, my, my tech background and my consulting background has actually kind of saved me a bit um, going into this because after you pull the wool off your eyes and realize that the farm to table shtick doesn't really work, and you you look at it like you would an engineer or a consultant or like your case an accountant. You know, th- things get. You kind of realize how silly a lot of a lot of the things that we're told to do are, and uh, and you can kind of correctify yourself in in short order. Yeah, and I this is what's always really drawn me to some of the stuff you've done is that you are very focused in the economics of how to farm in a way mm-hmm. that is not the conventional ag, but also not like you said the Joel Saladin method where it's like you know, back of the napkin kind of math of, well, if you have this many chickens and you spend this much money on feed, then you've got this much of a profit without ever like, you know, accounting for labor or all, all these other, you know, significant expenses that go along with that. And I'll, the- I'll tell you what, buddy, you're, you're giving Joel way too much freaking credit there. <laughs> I'll tell you what, this, dude, this dude wrote in his book on paper out loud, brags about, I've never created a marketing plan. I've never created sales targets. I've never done P&Ls, but like just brags about it. And like it takes you a while to realize because he doesn't really talk about it that much in his book, but like it, it's his inheritance. Like when you have a certain amount of money, you don't have to care. So like it's not it's not geared towards like people like me and you that got like bills to pay and we don't have a 550 acre inheritance that we can leverage into whatever the hell we want. We're not Elon where we can like spike by Twitter for like 44 billion. Like no, like we we got to pay bills now. We need cash in in order to make cash go out, and we have to make that cash. So you know, Joel, like what what sucked for me was you know coming from outside of farming. Like it it seemed like. He's he's making money, so like it it can't just be magic, you know. There there must be enough money coming in from this farm table thing. He must be selling enough chickens, selling enough eggs, blah blah blah, to, to actually make this thing pencil out. But it, it just freaking doesn't. And he's like, it's hard to be mad at him because he says it out loud. He's like, I don't make plans, <laughs> and so it's like I got to look at myself and say, you idiot! Like you you know better. Like you were a management consultant for five years. Like that you would have yelled and screamed and jumped up and down if you'd seen this outside of a farming context. But in the farming context, there's all this woo woo and magic and and kind of bullshit around it. And uh, you know th- this is this is where you wind up with people who ought to know better still freaking fall into that like Super Mario trap and. <laughs> If you're lucky, like me, you get another life. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot to unpack about that. The homestead to farmer transition that exists. The, you know, it reminds me a lot of like, you know, you go to the gym and you've got like your, your uh, fitness trainer, right? Well, why is that person a fitness trainer? Ninety nine percent of the time, it's because they love working out, but there's no way to work out and have a job, so they decide to make working out their job, right? And that's what a lot of these homesteaders that go into like farm to table do, right? It's like, I love doing this. I love this. I'm passionate about this. How do I make this a, the only thing I do? Because there's not enough time in the day to do the thing I want to do at the scale that I want to do, like feed my family, you know, the, the, the stereotypical, like, I want to grow all my own food. Well, you can't do that unless that's your job. And then you try to do it as your job and it's not profitable. And you don't feed your family that because you're too tired to cook a meal from growing fucking tomatoes all day. You know what I mean? It's it's got like very similar energy. Kind of like kind of nailed the origin story of the Ponzi scheme. Like I, I feel like <laughs> I feel like a movie could be made about that, about how somebody who's like, 
I've got this lovely hobby. How could I only do this hobby? I know. Let me convince everybody how I actually do this for a living when how I actually do it is telling the next guy. Uh, yeah. And, and that's permaculture in a nutshell. <laughs> so we're, we're going down a rabbit hole, but it does speak to something I think that's really important around this idea of like farming as a business, right? And what you guys are doing in terms of like this concept of like cooperative economics, which I think is like, it is a really great thing and it has a lot of buzz behind it, but there doesn't seem to be like a playbook for how to create cooperative farms. And there are cooperatives uh, and it's kind of like this really messy tax thing too, where cooperatives exist. Uh, some states recognize them as like an actual entity, whereas other states will say, well, are you an S corp or a C corp or a partnership? And from the federal side, there is no such thing as a cooperative business in the sense of tax purpose. So it's like this really messy area that I know intimately because I've been very much like, all right, how do we do this from a tax side? I'm like, nobody I know does cooperatives because it's not a thing in Massachusetts. If you're in California, it's a whole other animal. But like here, it doesn't really mean anything. But people love the idea of a cooperative. My point is that it's really complicated. Then even in practice, it becomes really complicated because like, how do you start a business and then give up part of your own sweat equity in a sense to new people? And kind of what does that process and practice look like? And I know you've been doing this for now a little while. Maybe you could speak a little bit to some of those, those issues, maybe some practical advice mm -hmm. and just, you know, some, some lived experiences. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a lot there. Cooperatives. I don't know. I, I feel like cooperatives are hard in practice, especially the way we talk about cooperative agriculture on the left, like this this social enterprise that's not only going to solve the food problem, but but is going to solve a number of problems around labor fairness and you know even getting into restoration of democracy and things like that. It tries to bite off an awful lot, and it tries to be a lot of things all at once. And and one of the things that it tries to be and that I tried and fell flat on my face with was basically trying to create something that incorporates everyone all at once in the beginning. Because we're in love with this idea of democracy, that everybody has value right now. There's no time element to it. There, there's no, there's no, I don't know. I kind of felt like it's, it's like, if you start a co-op, you've got to, you've got to swing open the doors and you've got to find a way to place people where they are instead of giving yourself time to start really small and build up a kind of momentum and inertia and, frankly, money and resources that it takes to later on be able to bring in people at the right time when they're needed and put them where they're needed. When you're starting out, it's just, it's just too hard. And uh, I think one of the big things about this is that, it's, it's like you said, people are very excited about the idea of a cooperative and what they can do. And that creates a problem where when you create one, it puts you under a microscope. Everybody's looking at you, and I think it tempts people in leadership positions to do things that are geared more towards good optics, good press, than to do what might be necessary for the organization at the time, which can include letting certain people go, which can include being really strict about who you let in, which can be being focused on profitability and being able to make money and have the resources to do what you need to do because you, you just like doing everything poor, like your hands are behind your back. And if you want to create social change and you want to not be dependent on these systems that we define as toxic, then if you don't want to depend on those resources, then you need to have your own. 
and you need to create your own because most of us going into this, we're working class. Like a lot of us ain't rich, you know, and if, and if we're trying to build this thing from the bottom up, then you have to build it. You have to get the materials to build the thing. So the optics are, are, are kind of a big complicating issue. And the other complicating issue that, that I've seen as a result when people try to make cooperatives a little too democratic and, and trying to let in maybe too many competing viewpoints and, and try to have that, that hurly-burly of democracy, when you don't pick the right people, you're going to wind up with people problems instead of technical problems. So like you were talking about, there's different forms of incorporation you can do for a co-op. You could you could do things as a recognized co-op. You could do it as a limited partnership, like a law firm. You could do it as a non-tax exempt nonprofit. There's a million different ways to, to organize a nonprofit as a business. There's a million different ways they can be taxed. There's a million different products you can do, ways you can secure land and all these other there's there's lots and lots of technical things that are fun to solve. But if you pick the wrong people who aren't necessarily rowing in the same direction like they they might have this idea that yes we want to pursue food sovereignty but they have different ideas of what food sovereignty means because of various biases or whatever or it's, you know some people want to do decolonized food sovereignty and they don't even know what the hell like decolonization means or some people just want to be able to i don't know have farm uh, farmers markets like take over the whole foodscape or whatever those can be radically competing visions for what is on paper the same goal you know, a community being able to feed itself. But if they don't agree on what that looks like, you're, you're going to have personal problems. You're going to have chaos around the vision. And the more people you get in the room, especially in the early stages, you know, you try to get 10 people, 15 people in a room and try to agree what the hell is food sovereignty and how are we going to pursue it? You're never going to leave that room. <laughs> you're, you're never even going to start. And by the time you come out of the room, you're just going to hate each other. And we're going to have another story about how like the left eats itself. Nobody can get along. Everybody's full of themselves, too much ego, blah, blah, blah. So that's the lesson I, I learned the hard way and decided, fuck that, never again. I'm going to start, <laughs> I'm going to start an effort with people who I know, people who I trust, and I know their minds. I know what they want out of life. I know what their values are. And we're going to start very small, but we're going to build something very real. And we're going to build it as slowly as necessary for that thing to be really attractive to other people. Because, And I've, I think I've heard you allude to this like several times. Like, Eventually, it comes down to somebody's got to build, start building the pieces of the future that we want. Like, We, we can't just talk it to death. Somebody's got to start building pieces that other people can start to add on and tweak and change. Um, and that's that's kind of what we're what we're doing here. So with our co-op with with Sylvan Aqua and with Blackbird, which is the name of the pilot of the, the three farm co-op that we're making, we've been fortunate enough to have two partners who who get it, and we're moving in the same direction. We have a very similar definition of what food sovereignty not only is on a definitional level, but like what it looks like in terms of where do you sell, what do you grow whose role is what in the system. Like nobody's freaking out, for example, that I might not be growing a damn thing on our farm next year and I might just be killed. Like people get that. And so we get to solve the fun technical problems. Like when we have our retreat next month, we get to talk about like, what does our incorporation look like? What do our contracts look like? How much do we want to grow? How do we onboard new people? Blah, blah, blah. We're not having fights about, I want to include more black people. You don't want to include more black. Like we're not having that fight. We want to include more working class people. We want to exclude people who have inheritances. Well, rich people are people too. Like we're not having that. 
we're able to talk about how do we create enough food so we can start selling food at like supermarkets where I live, where most people are poor. We can have real conversations about, about actually doing food. So in terms of practical advice, like, you know, people who you know listen to this podcast, they want to start, they want to start something. They want to not repeat somebody else's mistakes. I'll, I'll say these, I'll, I'll run them down, even wrote them down. Do not start a cooperative with people you have not worked with before. Don't start a cooperative with people you don't enjoy working with. So like, don't, don't have that guy that you just could not stand. Just because y'all work together does not mean it's a good match. Figure out what are your real motivators for starting a cooperative. There's this book that I read when I was a consultant called The Five Whys, which is basically if you've got something you want to do, ask yourself why. And then when you answer that question, ask yourself, why is that true? So like, I want to start a cooperative to pursue food sovereignty. Why is food sovereignty important? Well, food sovereignty is important because people don't have equal access to nutritious and nutritious food. And, and there's all these issues around land and climate change and blah, blah, blah. Well, why is land and climate change? Like go down that rabbit hole and make sure the people you're working with, like have those same deep rooted answers in, in terms of why they want to get involved in this. And then with that, you know, keep the democracy for later, like the big tent stuff. But it's also nice to have opinions from people who are outside of your, your area of expertise, your way of thinking, but put them on like an unpaid advisory board, like people who you can hit up on the phone and say, hey, I want to run this thing by you, not you got to vote. <laughs> that's, that's just going to create chaos for you. And the other, I mean, the other thing really is be picky about who you start with. And, and I think this is the hardest thing. Like people that I've talked to who've tried to do this kind of thing are kind people. And because they're kind, they want to give everybody a chance. And this is, this is something I did. Like when I got into agriculture, agriculture was supposed to be uncorporate. So when I was in engineering, when I was, you know, when I was doing that thing, like I was looking for like holes in people's stories because like we're engineering things, you get something wrong, you get somebody killed, you could get somebody like held up in an airport. Mistakes were very consequential in the line of work that I came from. So when you go on farming, like it, it, I don't know, it, it's kind of weird. Like we, we take the mission so seriously, like, oh, we've got to save the world. we got to save the planet. we got to grow food for people. But then we're like really unserious about who gets to participate. So we tend to let everybody in and chaos ensues. And so when you turn that on its head and you're super picky about who your partners are and you're looking for reasons to reject people, it can look bad when people are looking at you because you look like an asshole. You look like an elitist. You look like, you know, this is supposed to be about, you know, bringing everybody in and bringing people together and solving differences and blah, blah, blah. And it's like that comes later after we have something right now. I, I need to pick like the two or three people who friggin get it and are ready to hustle and grind and do what needs to be done so that other people down the road can take it a little bit more easy. And that, that's hard to do when people are watching. And the last thing I'll say, just you know, really, really specific, is um, if you're going to start a cooperative, like an agricultural cooperative, start around whatever you think you'll be best at selling, and what has the biggest market. I'll put it out there. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's all great advice, and I, I do think, given the farm to table movement, there's a lot of opportunity to step into these areas. There's, there's a lot. I mean, the thing about the farm to table movement that I think is downplay I don't want to say downplay that's not really the right word but I think not not so much talked about is the fact that the reason people are so attracted to it is because there's something fundamentally missing in the way 
we eat food, right? Like there, there's a piece of it that's missing that people understand, even if they can't fully articulate it. Like it, it's nice because you feel good because you're buying local and blah blah blah. But like to to take your example of why, like start you start unpacking why people are drawn to that. There's like this really intimate piece of our identity that's tied to understanding our food, where it comes from, and it doesn't mean you need to know your farmer, but rather. That we understand food within this bigger landscape of who we are, our identities, our understanding of our place in both physically on the landscape and temporally through, you know, the seasons and so on, right? The example I like to use a lot is white girls and pumpkin spice. Like, why why do white girls love pumpkin spice, right? Like, it it is this really deep-seated, like, humanness of, like, it is fall. This is a part of our fall season, right? And it's silly. Chris is laughing. You guys can't see this. But, (laughs) but like, it's it, it, like, does speak to, like, this really intimate part of our identity where it's, like, this is, like, the exception where people get to, like, basically go go ham on their like this is the fall season i do all the fall things unfortunately it's just pumpkins but like it it does speak to like and it's not even real pumpkin it's it's like synthetic chemistry yeah yeah it's like synthetic (laughs) spice for pumpkins but like it speaks to like this really deep part seated part of our humanness that i think is otherwise mostly erased and the reason i'm bringing this up though is because like you're talking about like finding what's best at selling. I think there's a lot of opportunity to kind of pick at that a little bit for new yeah. markets. That doesn't mean go and grow the craziest shit you can find, but like, <laughs> you know, really think about like what that movement means to you and why that's attractive to you. And I think you'll find there are a lot of people that might agree with you on why that's attractive to you. And that might help you be able to unpack a little bit of what you might be most drawn to growing or raising and, um, you know, start to really think about those questions of like what you're trying to do and what you're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. I also want to talk about the other side of this. We've, we've kind of touched on like the the pragmatic components of it from a farming perspective. But you've you've brought up the fact that like there's this other like very economic part that is really important that farmers tend to lack the knowledge of and refuse to engage with in a lot of ways because it's not it doesn't fit that like narrative of like the the dirty farmer who doesn't know much but how to grow food well or you know whatever the fuck it is you know and i think there's a lot of ways we can start thinking about there are tools that are disposable just because we're on the left doesn't mean we can't we can't access those tools or we shouldn't be accessing those tools like if we're trying to talk about a level playing field that means also utilizing all of the the things that are available to us mm-hmm. I know from my own personal experiences working with folks that are more on the the native plant restoration, tree farms, you know, seedlings, things like that. People don't get into it and they're afraid of it because it seems really intimidating to apply for a grant. But there's a lot of resources out there and ways that we can leverage our existence basically and the fact that the government recognizes that like our food system needs to change, and they're trying to figure out ways to kind of inject some money into making that change happen. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot there. First thing I want to say, though, is that, like, I wouldn't give white women a monopoly on pumpkin spice. Like, I, I love pumpkin spice. Like, I'm <laughs> six foot four, 200 pounds, black as all get out. I freaking love pumpkin spice. So, yeah, I like to jump on white chicks about it because it's just fun to do that. But uh, let's let's all be honest. We all love pumpkin spice. It's it's fine. It's good. <laughs> but I mean, it, like what you're talking about speaks a lot to, and I, I think you know I've got some issues 
with with Marx and Engels, but but one of the big things that that I think that really speaks to me, you know, from their writings is this idea of of alienation and how people feel alienated. You know, they they focus a lot on alienation from work, but where we are now, because I I think I've talked about this in another podcast where we we've gone from the point to where leftist thinkers have said people are becoming more and more pieces of machinery. I feel like these days people are becoming more and more of the raw materials. Like we're, we, we are the ones being mined. Like they don't even need us to act like machinery anymore. Now we're all like debt modules, basically. <laughs> like people are trying to see like what the hell they can get out of us. So, you know, as that gets worse and, and it is getting worse with, with inequality and in, in an economy that's based more and more on rent seeking and, and that kind of thing, people are looking for that connection to, I guess you might call it the village. Like where they feel like they depend on the people who are around them, where they're of service to the people around them. And they're not just someone who generates an income and pays debt, because that's how a lot of us feel. Like we're living not just to work. We're living not just for the weekend, but we we are just trapped in an endless cycle of make money and pay somebody on the other side on the other side of the country who's got more money than they could ever spend if they lived a you know, hundred lifetimes. People are sick of that. And the farm to table movement is, I think, one of the few things that taps into that anxiety. And unfortunately, in a lot of ways, it's it's tapped into it in a way that's terrible <laughs> because it's 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 basically leveraging it to make more damn money instead of trying to fix what the fundamental problem is. So it's it's assuaging people's guilt. It's, it's like you said about the homesteading Ponzi scheme. It's like I've got this hobby that makes me feel good. How can I do it all the time? I can convince this sucker that I'm doing something that I'm not. And round and round we go until the bottom falls out. So that that really that really speaks to something. And part of that culture, getting towards what you said about people either not knowing about the tools that are available to them to, to do cooperative agriculture or food sovereignty, things like that. The culture around farm to table basically has, has almost swung the pendulum too far. You know, we don't want to be pieces of economic machinery. We want to decorporatize things. And so now we get to this point where, okay, anything that's around corporatism, anything that's around business is potentially toxic and almost certainly toxic. So that includes financial planning. That includes capital budgeting. That includes grant seeking. That includes venture capital. Like all, all the things that you would do to resource any other kind of business, we've kind of decided are evil. And that idea, unfortunately, is is being given a lot of weight by people who who are agricultural influencers, many of whom come into it with an inheritance. Like that's their like that's their trump card. They don't have to go after capital and money the way that most hustlers have to because they were born with a silver spoon in their mouth, and they don't tell how important that silver spoon is in their story. They convince everybody that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can net $25,000 on 20 acres or whatever the hell Polyface says. And they don't talk about how important like having an integrated $3 million meat facility is in that equation. Oh, that thing? Yeah, that, that little thing that is the centerpiece of his ability to make any living at all. But now, you know, we later on, I think I think we're, we're going to talk a little about about decolonization. But, you know, pe- people who are afraid to use the, the master's tools, so to speak, <laughs> to try to liberate themselves or resist uh, what they don't like, 
need to look at Native people and what we did. Like, look, for example, at if you, if you look at military history, which I'm a big nerd about, um, especially like with the Indigenous Wars, with the French and Indian War and, and the Seven Years War, all that stuff that, that went on um, up in Iroquois. The, the Five Nations revolutionized firearms warfare in a way that still that is still used by modern special forces. They invented things like the rolling ambush. Like the reason we don't really line up in columns and just shoot each other in the face anymore is because native people were like, the point of the war is to live. Not to so, just- so you're telling me the Patriot lied to me? Mel Gibson lied to me? Mel Gibson lied to everybody. <laughs> we all saw South Park. So, I mean, when, when you look at, you know, the Iroquois, like I, I try to imagine what would happen now if some of these ideological purists like existed like within the Seneca or the Oneida when these guys were trading for firearms that they'd be able to effectively fight three European powers all at once and say, you really ought to be using stone-tipped arrows because, man, firearms, those are the master's tools and blah, blah, blah. And like they would have shot that guy in the face and moved on. Like <laughs> they didn't have time for that crap because their ability to defend themselves was a very, very serious enterprise. And, and they would grab whatever technology was available. It was not about ideological purity. It was about how do I adapt these tools to my aims and my ways of life in order to be able to survive and thrive. And the ones that did it, the Five Nations included, survived the onslaught and the collapse the best. Whereas nations like mine that didn't do it so well we got our asses handed to us, <laughs> not only by them, but by the Iroquois when they came down and raided our villages and said, dude, we need more people because uh, friggin' smallpox. So there is a historical and decidedly, quote unquote, decolonized or indigenized precedent to, or precedent rather, to being willing to use the tools that are at your disposal, even if they come from a source that you're not particularly friendly with. Um, and that's something we need to be willing to do. And and when it comes to agriculture, there is so I mean, government agencies are basically begging farmers to take money. People that want to do agriculture, agriculture related stuff. There are so many grant programs. There is so much money. Almost every farmer that I know, like the handful of farmers that I know that created like a genuine zero to like farming their ass off kind of story. I think about people like Emma Jagos out of uh, Moon Valley Farm and Frederick, Frederick. Like people like her got really good at figuring out how to boost their balance sheets courtesy of the taxpayer and the federal government. And that's something that we need to not be afraid to do, number one. And number two, when we talk about cooperatives and, and we, when we get into specialization and the fact that not everybody needs to be like, bent over a row like doing the farming but you need to have people whose job it is to like go after money whether it's sales whether it's capital whether it's grants whatever if you have people who are dedicated to doing that life gets a lot easier for sure like you said i i think we do need to stop trying to exist outside of the system that we can't exist outside of i don't think it's really effective and i think it just allows us to perpetuate the system that we've existed within where the left is like this laughing stock, where we don't accomplish anything because nobody wants to do the thing that's not pure, right? And that's why you've got like these random niche Instagram accounts, myself included, that are like driving like these narratives that are like not framed in like a reality where, you know, it's like, oh, these are all these things we'd love to do, or this is the way the world should be. But it's like, well, 
if you can't engage with the world as it is and try to put yourself out there a little bit, you're not going to change anything. And what's what's the fucking point? Right. Like if you're not doing anything, it doesn't matter how many books you read or how like good your theory is. Uh, like it, it, it just it doesn't matter. Like the, we're heading towards a cliff as a society. And if we don't do anything to slow that down, who gives a shit? Yeah. The reason I tend to refer to, to leftism in the third person <laughs> and, and not in the first person plural is because of that. Like the, too many people that, that I've met in this space, they're, they're, they're thinkers and they're not doing anything. They're so afraid of failing. They're really afraid of looking bad. Like there's a lot of ego. There's a lot of vanity. And I don't know, like it, it, it smacks of uh, one of my least favorite words, which is, which is privilege. You know, cause, cause where I grew up, like I was like the rich dude in the hood. Um, and I, I've talked about that. Like I had, I had Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis. I was like, ah, I might as well have done billionaire despite people getting stabbed in my driveway. But like people who wanted to escape that poverty, like you had to hustle. There was nobody like sitting on ass talking about the world that they wanted to exist, but doing nothing to like try to get out of it. You know, people were doing what they had to do to get out, whether it was going to college or selling drugs or anything in between. Both like (laughs) there was no sitting around talking about like the world that you want to exist and doing absolutely nothing to create it. And one of the problems that we that we have from a food sovereignty standpoint is that, number one, a lot of people are talking about these end states of how things will be. And number two, not coming up with like, how do you get from where we are to there, like step by step, soup to nuts, like what like what does the roadmap look like? Because they're depending on this collapse, like that one day the whole system is going to collapse because, you know, it's going to be climate, it's going to be politics, it's going to maybe be both, whatever the hell. But there's this idea that there's going to be this blank slate, number one, where society almost kind of resets. And number two, that the best ideas are going to win. And on top of that, not only the best ideas are going to win, but that there's going to be no competition for it. Like there's, there's no historical precedent for, you know, if there is some sort of, of social collapse, which, which has happened from time to time. What usually happens is like whoever has the biggest swinging dick is the one who like defines what society looks like after that. It's not going to be this technocratic like, oh, we're going to look at this system. We're going to look at this system and whichever ones we're going to we're going to have a reasonable deliberation. Like, no, you know, if society collapses, people are going to be hungry. They're going to be terrified. They're going to be pissed off at each other. They're going to just live through some shit and nobody's going to be thinking reasonably. So who the hell knows what might come after a collapse? We, we might think there's going to be some kind of like proletariat paradise where like everything is cooperatively owned and, and we get rid of the aggrandizement of profit and all this other stuff. But if that guy over there is like seven feet tall and is cutting off the heads of anybody that says, you can't have more than me, it's not going to happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, so yeah, I, I think we have to get over this idea that there's a collapse that's going to give us this level playing field to finally start off of and the best idea is going to win. And I get swatted down by like the biggest narcissistic sociopath in the room, but rather like how are we going to work within the systems we've got now to almost like to get us to where we want to go almost without anybody noticing it. Yeah. Which is what I want. Like, I don't like the idea of revolution. I've read, I've read way too much history to be like, yeah, revolution would be great. Because <laughs> usually people like you and me get screwed in revolutions. Like, it's not, it's not fun. Um, 
So if if I can avoid any kind of collapse, revolutionary kind of situation, I will do that. And I don't care what anybody calls me as a result of it. I don't like violence. I don't like upheaval. I am certainly capable of violence, but I'd rather not. I'd rather <laughs> eat pumpkin spice. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, a little pumpkin spice. <laughs> Stop the revolution. <laughs> so there's a couple things I want to unpack about what you just said. And also, I'm going to do a, a little callback to one of your Instagram stories, probably from like a year ago. So I'm going to put you on the spot about that a little bit. I'm old. I'm <laughs> so, so like I, I fully agree with you. This like collapse is not a good thing. It's not going to be a level playing field. Historically speaking, like, like you think about any other historical collapse, and like throw in like nuclear weapons and like nuclear power plants that rely on these massive integrated global systems to like not burn down. I live like fifteen miles from one, so like please. On the bright side, I'll go out quickly when it goes down. But you know what I mean? Like that's the silver lining here is I'm not gonna have like a very agonizing death. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's the silver linings, right? Mm-hmm. Like I agree with you, like our our job is to or the way I think about it, like on a bigger picture, I have kids, you have kids, uh they're about the same age. So like we're, I think that that causes your brain to think a little bit differently. I think of it as my job is to start this process of rethinking what food looks like. I don't have any answers, but there are certain questions that need to be asked. And in your case, certain things that need to be tried to be proven whether or not they work. And if they don't, at least we know. Mm-hmm. One of the stories that you did about a year ago, I think, was about American chestnuts and your anti-chestnut tirade. So He's laughing again. And um, I didn't fully disagree with you about it. Uh, however, to the context we're talking about right now i do think it's really important to think about like tree crops and these other perennial crops even if we can't use them or you know as people that are growing or think about growing food you know building the resources available for future generations to have whether or not there is a collapse of society but rather like all right if there's a hundred year old hickory tree like hopefully with the technology we have somebody can fucking figure out how to make it effective and efficient to process that those calories right Mm -hmm. and that can be just as valuable in the future as something as easy not to downplay what you do as growing chickens in pasture when you have like this industrial infrastructure set up to provide Mm -hmm. food and you know electric netting and all these other things so i'm curious about kind of if you could maybe talk a little bit about i guess why you wanted to talk about chestnuts and kind of uh, maybe how that plays into what we're talking about, like this longer term thought about food systems and understanding your place in, you know, the multi-generational development of sustainable agriculture. I'm trying to remember because I've gone on several like chestnut related times. Basically that it was not, (laughs) it didn't make sense compared to corn. Calorically speaking, energy input speaking that the Permi people are totally out of touch with how food grows basically, which I don't disagree with again, but I do think Maybe when your your goal isn't to just anger people on the internet, we could talk a little bit at more depth about it. But that is my goal. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think my issue with the way, like, I, I have no problem with chestnuts as chestnuts. Most most of any problem I'll have with anything is usually the way people talk about applying it. So if I remember this correctly, what pisses me off about the way people talk about chestnuts is this idea of replacing corn with it. And when people say that, I don't know if they realize what they're saying. I don't think a lot of people think about why corn 
is so successful. And I, I think when people talk about, like, because there's this big permaculture thing around, you can plant, I think, uh, chestnuts and hazelnuts in some kind of guild that replaces, like, the protein energy content of um, of corn and soy. And it could, it could effectively, like, replace the big two of, uh, of, you know, the big five or six of the American agricultural system. And it, it's bullshit. Like, <laughs> chestnuts, and, and it's not bullshit from, from the standpoint that you couldn't supply a farm or a community with the food that they need with chestnuts and hazelnuts. It's the idea that you're going to replace a crop like corn, which you can grow from Canada down to the Andes and everywhere in between, that you're going to replace that with this fussy hybridized tree that sometimes produces nuts and sometimes doesn't. If it's in the right place at the right side, it's like, come on. Like everything I think about tends to be at the system level. And yeah, you could have isolated pockets where, you know, in a region, maybe chestnut, hazelnut guilds and, and a few other things could replace kind of the, the standard crops that we use now, um, corn and beans or whatever. But from a systemic standpoint, no, <laughs> like we, we need to talk about chestnuts and hazelnuts in terms of what they can actually do, which is a lot, but they cannot they are not corn because if they were, we'd be doing it. They would be planting chestnuts and hazelnuts from Canada down to the Andes and it would, it would be serving the purpose of corn. And I think, you know, just given the way I talk, because I have a very polemical from the hip kind of style, it's easy to take that as Chris friggin' hates chestnuts and everything about them. <laughs> you heard like, it here first. <laughs> this, dude, yeah. this dude goes around and like cuts down chestnut trees just because they're there. Um, no, it, it's not that it's, I mean, it's decolonizing, like you're doing the opposite of George Washington. Come on. <laughs> oh, no, you're actually doing the same. So you're using the master's tools. Exactly. Um, you know, I mean, wh whether it's like whether it's chestnuts or regenerative agriculture, because that, like that's another one. Like you take something that could be good, like you take chestnuts or you take like <laughs> you take managed grazing and then you wrap all these insane promises around them. Uh, when I hear people saying you can take a chestnut and then around the chestnut, you wrap this promise that it could like it could do for food systems what corn and soybeans have done. You take managed grazing and then you wrap regenerative agriculture around it and you're you know, Alan Savory and you're done hunting black people and elephants or whatever. And you decide to go up on a TED stage and say that this is the most hopeful thing you will ever see. We can reverse desertification. We can freaking undo climate change. We can store the whole legacy carbon load in the atmosphere and the soil. Everybody's going to get blowjobs. It's going to be great. Like you wrap all these promises around this thing and people lose their damn minds. And now you can't have a rational conversation with people around how, hey, let's do both and. Like, let's take chestnuts where they make sense, if they make sense, you know, as like you said, like having an all the above approach to agriculture, most people, especially in, in the friggin influencer sphere and and frankly, like people, most people aren't like you where I can, I can see you. Like <laughs> you know, my wife thousand, says that, too. So <laughs> I can see you reading like a thousand page book about chestnuts and loving every minute of it. Most people aren't like that. Like they're going to listen to what they heard on the Internet this one time. And that will be what they believe about chestnuts forever. 
And so when, when these promises get attached to these things, it pisses me off because it makes my job harder. So like now when I need to, for example, convince my customers why corn isn't evil and why I feed it to my livestock and why I'm not apologizing for it, like that's what I'm dealing with. People making these wild promises about these other, about these other things like chestnut, but the chest the chestnut itself is innocent. It is innocent and useful and and perfectly practical in certain scenarios, but it it's the stuff that gets wrapped around it. It's all the hype and the promises and and all this other stuff. Um, but you and me, like in terms of like if you and I sat down and like planned an agricultural system for a region, like we would probably come to very similar conclusions around how different crops would be used. And what sucks is. It's not you and me sitting in a room. It's usually going to be me trying to convince other people who are not subject matter experts in, in any of this stuff about the way forward and trying to basically unwind their miseducation that they get from this influencer sphere where anybody can say whatever the hell they want. It's a lot of money to just say whatever the hell you want, especially if people want to hear it. So much money in it. Right. And just I'm not like, getting any of it, but I would, you know, I'd like to if somebody wants to send some money. Because you're not uh, you're not blowing enough sunshine up people's asses. That's your problem. See, you you'd be a trillionaire by now. I know. You just told the people what they want to hear. Then I could buy all the land and mm-hmm. do it. I could have all my chestnut trees. That would be your origin. They'd be all dead, but you know, I'd have them. So you know. <laughs> uh, but the, you know, so we've talked about, or you're bringing up this uh, constant idea of a scale, right? Because that's really what what makes corn outside of like its growing properties so significant. Like people hate it because of its scale and this ubiquitousness in the marketplace, which is weird because then you also have like these people being like hemp, like we need to grow hemp and replace it. And it's like, well, you're, you're talking about a different crop to do the same thing that corn does, but because it's not being done now, it's okay. But if it was, you wouldn't like it. Like, and the only reason you like it is because of weed, which it's not the same thing. So I, I'm not really sure why you're so sold on this crop. Uh, and that's a whole other story. But you've talked about monocrops, and I really, the first time I saw you talk about monocrops, I was like, what the, what the hell is this guy talking about? And then I started doing some research, and I was like, oh, this is actually really interesting. So like, there's this really uh, interesting historical context for monocrops, especially here in North America, and also the role of monocrops as not being necessarily a bad thing. Like we, we, we tend to shit on this idea of monocrops like because it's of the ecological devastation that happens or theoretically happens from monocrops, which to an extent it does, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. But also we need to like, we have to come to terms when we talk about growing food with like what the fucking food pyramid looks like, right? Where like you have these staple crops that nobody really wants to actually talk about that are the foundation of all our agriculture, whether or not we're raising corn for livestock, like we're still talking about 50, 60% of most of our diets coming from some kind of grain. That means you have to grow a lot of it. And it's hard to grow a lot of it without having a ton of labor go into it without monocrops. So I don't know if you could talk a little bit about scale and a little, maybe a little bit about monocrops and kind of your thoughts about what that really looks like while being sustainable. I could probably do a whole entire podcast just on that part. Um, yeah. So <sighs> trying to figure out where to even begin on this. Like people, I think when we look at what's wrong with food systems and food webs, people are way too focused on tools and methods. Tools are, <laughs> tools are like the chestnut. They're innocent. It's, it's, 
the culture, the values, and so forth <laughs> that motivate the use of that tool that decides whether a hammer builds a house or whether a hammer caves your neighbor's head in. Like it, it, it's, the tool is just sitting there <laughs> minding its business. So when we look at what's wrong with monoculture, if you were to walk through, like, like let's say you got transported back to freaking, I don't know, uh, 16th, <laughs> early 16th century, what is now New York, and you were in a village somewhere near where my people used to live, you would leave the village and you would walk outside the palisade and you could walk a mile in any direction <laughs> and find nothing but cornfields. This is before steel tools. This is before combines. This is before white people. This is before anything resembling any kind of industry as we know it now. You would have gone to an Algonquin village, especially a big Algonquin village that was approaching like small city size or even an Iroquois country. And you could walk a mile in a direction and it would be all food. Like it would be mostly corn. It would be interplanted with three sisters. It would be, you know, we did kind of a slash and burn kind of agriculture. So you, you would you would have the forest right next to it, you know, waiting for their turn. Things running on like a basically a 30 to 40 year rotation. Um, very long scale stuff that you cannot get away with in a market economy. So like the, the monocultures were were there, something very close to a monoculture. If you were to go into a modern farmer's cornfield, now this is another, another thing that that's just, there's so much goddamn misinformation about how conventional farming works. Like I live in the middle of grain country now, like I'm on the Northern neck of Virginia. Like there, there are like, this is corn and soy and canola country. You walk into these cornfields now, you walk into the wheat fields, you will find catch crops. They don't really till it. Like it's not really a monoculture. Like people are co-planting nitrogen fixes along with their corn. They're putting in catch crops to prevent erosion and to, and to fix certain nutrients at the same time. Like it, it is not as dumb and unsophisticated as, as people are putting out there to make conventional agriculture into this villain the villain in this story is not the fields and fields of corn or the fields and fields of whatever the villain in this story is the fact that corn is being grown for a price and not for a person so corn is going into this black box of a market where it can be turned into god only knows what and in a lot of cases that god only knows what is either speculative number one or number two, it's tied to some kind of political patronage. Or number three, it's tied to some pretty strong arm trade type stuff. So we've got like the bugaboo that people have around monoculture. It's really about land use change. We're leveling the rainforest. We're you know we're we're knocking down perennials. We're you know we're plowing up soil. We're screwing things up in order to turn native landscapes or wild landscapes or whatever you want to call it into these cornfields and, and we can't stand it. And we're not turning them into these things in a vacuum. We're turning it into them because when you grow corn, it becomes ethanol because there's regulations around it geared towards patronage of political of, of farmers who are one of the most protected political classes in the United States. We're growing corn because we're shipping it off to Africa and we're shipping it off to Southeast Asia. We're shipping it all over the damn global South depressing those agricultural economies and making them dependent on us in ways that go way beyond agriculture, that go into defense, that go into mining, that go into immigration and all this other stuff. 
food has been turned into primarily a weapon. That's the problem. It's, it's not the fact that it's monocultures. If you were to get rid of the monocultures and keep the same political environment, you're going to have the same outcomes, except food is just going to get a lot more expensive. You're not necessarily going to arrest land use change. You're not going to do any of the stuff that we would supposedly like the end of monoculture to do. That's not, that's not going to happen. You're just going to wind up with the same outcomes. It's just going to be way less efficient. Everybody's going to be way more exhausted. You get paid a lot less. Like that, that's all that's going to be. Food system, you know, monocultures are fine as long as they are pointed at feeding people. The point of food is to feed people. And as long as that is the primary purpose, history demonstrates that you can do monocultures sustainably, better than sustainably. But when you do monocultures within a sustainable cultural and economic and, and so forth kind of framework, it fundamentally changes the way you you operate those monocultures. You don't level forests to, <laughs> to create cornfields just because the price of corn is like three nineteen. You know, you're not going to level that forest if you don't see mouths that need to be fed. If if you like, if your people are comfortable, you don't have anything you need to trade. You would do the almost impossible thing to do in a capitalistic market economy, which is sit down and <laughs> shut up and be happy <laughs> because you planted enough. But you know, as long as we have this growth for growth's sake kind of culture that dominates our economy. And this is why it's so important to create economic alternatives and not just philosophical alternatives to capitalism, but real economic living alternatives is because as long as that mode of growth for growth sake of chasing prices, chasing commodities, chasing markets that are connected, maybe or maybe not to people who, you know, you've never met, will never meet, will never have any real impact on your life. As long as we're doing that, monoculture will be the tool that we use to level this planet. But if it wasn't monoculture, it would be something else. <laughs> the problem is the culture. It's the values. It's the market system that we have now. So what we need to be doing, and, and by we, I mean this weird, like, I don't know, eco-socialist left or whatever the hell we want to call it. We need to focus a lot less on ending monoculture or getting rid of corn or like doing these little things. We have to create different economic systems that use the tools that we have now in a much, much, much better way. Um, that creates a lot less upheaval, that creates a lot less systemic risk. But like one of the things that kind of raises my hackles a little bit when I when people talk about, because this is another rant I've gone off on chestnuts that, that I, I don't think you might be familiar <laughs> with, because I think I, I was screaming this to my dad. Yeah, I wasn't there. If you were to, if you were to replace corn with chestnuts and chestnuts fell short, who's the first one to starve? You know? It ain't going to be rich people like the people who bear the brunt of the risk for all these new technical like whiz bang kind of things that, that we want to do ecologically. If we fuck up, the people who are going to suffer the most are the people at the bottom of the economic ladder. So we have to be real careful about wanting this like wholesale revolutionary change in, in ecological systems and, and try to like move the needle as little as possible but in the right direction because that upheaval that risk always falls on people at the bottom yeah when you're talking about these systemic changes versus like these symbolic changes i think a lot about like the eat the rich thing right if we kill jeff bezos like we're gonna somehow solve 
capitalism, you know, like as if there aren't five people that are going to be gunning for his seat. And like, you're not changing anything with like, even if you did go out and eat the rich, like it's not going to change the systemic problem that perpetuates rich people existing. Mm-hmm. Like you have to challenge it from the other end. Otherwise you're dealing with just a symptom of the system as it exists. Yeah. And I think going after monocrops can sometimes be that. Like, I have this other sort of project with uh, Dr. Aisha Khan. We've talked about, like, monocrops and, like, is eating meat the problem? And it's like, well, no, there's this whole infrastructure that exists. Even if we stopped eating meat today, ethanol and all these other byproducts of corn would continue to perpetuate the system regardless of our dietary change. So you're not really addressing the issue by going vegan. I'm not saying that you shouldn't eat less meat and that there aren't other things to be considered of, but as a a wholesale thing, it's not going to change anything. So I did want to talk about this idea of scale too, because what you're doing is trying to scale up to compete price-wise with a lot of farmers that are operating at scales of orders of magnitude larger than you. And again, this goes back to this idea of like, how do we grow food and be local and do all these things? while also providing affordable food, livable wages, and like not selling out, so to speak, around like scaling and using these fancy business ideas of capital investment and like, you know, tax dodging and whatever it might be, right? But that doesn't mean like scaling is bad. It's a tool that we should be aware of. How much can we actually scale? What what are your thoughts around like what that actually looks like in terms of like viability for without like losing its sense of place of where your food is coming from, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that that's the risk that in scaling up that you become the thing you hate, right? Like we don't, we don't want to fall over that watershed where it's like, oh, we just became the next Cargill ADM and, and that sucks. With better optics. With much better optics and just best greenwashing money can buy. <laughs> the fundamental question, like the, the thing that I ask myself, and this is like one of those weird things. You get up, you look in the mirror and you like yell at yourself like you're in a movie. Um, for me, it's do you want to feed 640,000 people or not? And that's like the number of people that like roughly live in Washington, D.C. or something like that. And it's when you when you look at the at the problem in terms of the number of people who need to be fed, it, it becomes real clear that you you have to find a way to scale. Otherwise, this is all just masturbation. Like this is all just us trying to make ourselves feel better as the world comes down around our ears. But if we want to arrest land use change, if, if we want to change the way that market economies work, if we want to make sure that working class people are able to be fed good food coming from regenerated landscapes, then you have to think about scale. You, you don't get to not. <laughs> you don't get to like grow your 2,000 chickens or, or your little farm or whatever and claim, well, if everybody else was like me, then everything would be fine. Like that's the most narcissistic shit you could possibly like come at this thing with scale for me scale is not only necessary from a standpoint of solving the food problem by creating a new type of food web but when when you talk about like a farm business or a cooperative i think it's the only way for them to be economically viable and when you look again like i always look back in my own roots into history into how indigenous people manage landscapes from a position of reciprocity rather than perpetual growth they did everything at scale 
you know, my great, 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 great grandmothers and grandfathers, like they, they did everything. It's like they went big or they went home, you know, because they, they had, they had mouths to feed and they had a lot of mouths to feed. And, and there was no like trying to feed everybody at backyard scale, like native villages tended to be connection, like connected areas of villages related by clan tribes where everybody was cooperating on creating enormous amounts of food across the entire commons. Like the entire landscape was treated as <laughs> as a giant farm, whether it was pulling fish and crabs and shellfish out of the water or growing corn or hunting stuff out of the woods or harvesting acorns or freaking chestnuts and all the other stuff that was here. You know, that was all done at scale as a team, everybody together. So when, when we like fast forward and, and we have this idea that scale is bad and that we should do like the whole <laughs> plowman's folly thing of like everybody has two pigs on however many freaking, I don't know, whatever that shit show was. Where basically we're trying to feed the world or a city at backyard scale. They have not heard of the word redundancy yet. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it just doesn't work. There's no historical precedent for scale, like for that tiny scale really working you know in my mind there's scale that is killing the planet and there's scale that has that has been good and has rejuvenated the planet and has allowed people to live in balance on landscapes for very very long periods of time but both of them involved bigness (laughs) and we we need to channel the culture that drove the virtuous bigness and get away from the culture that drives the bad big, you know, the bad bigness that, that that's all about accumulation and, and making myself rich and speculating and gambling. And the other one that's people oriented and reciprocity oriented, not only towards living people, but but towards everything else in the ecosystem. So, you know, scale scale doesn't have to be, you know, something that you're afraid of. And I think you have to be careful to not fall into that trap of anything the bad guy is doing is bad. <laughs> you know? That's just a really dangerous thing to fall down. It, it ties your hands when it should. Yeah. Or conversely, anything the good guys are doing is good. You know, people that are, I'm going to pick on permacultures, permaculturalists right now, people that are like doing cool, like, you know, mutual aid and so on, just because they're doing those good things doesn't mean their food systems are inherently good. And that's what we should be mimicking, yep. which I, I think can also be kind of in some other ways, really difficult and dangerous to kind of navigate because it's hard to shit on somebody for who's also doing good things. Be like, hey, man, you're doing these really cool things, but also that doesn't mean your food production system is like the thing we need to replicate across the globe, which people don't like hearing because they are doing a good thing. Hey, we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from poorproles.com. On our website, we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context, as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases, such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Proles website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. You can also support the show through that website, poorproles.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. 
Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. Are we good on time for you? I know we're running a little bit later. Yeah, than I, I, I got all day. It's Friday, man. I'm, okay. Yeah, I don't give a shit. <laughs> so, like, noon time, I'll see, like, a glass of whiskey in your hand? I mean, yeah, it, it might get progressively more alcoholic, but, dude, I got nothing to do until 3 o'clock, so I'm all yours for as long. Oh, boy. <laughs> It'd be great to do a super long-ass podcast. People are, why is this one episode five hours? Five hours long? <laughs> dude, I would love to do a five-hour-long podcast. Let's rock it. However long it takes. All right, so... The other side of this idea of scale is also specialization, which you've kind of touched on at this point a little bit. It is also something I think people, again, you see these ebbs and flows of marketplaces and you're like, all right, well, I have this ebb, you know, I've sold out. It's, you know, I think about like landscaping, right? Around here, you got the landscaping guys, they got like a month or two off, then they go straight into snowplow, right? Because it's like, well, I got this truck, this capital invested, I need to do something with it. Most of them end up not making any money because of like how expensive like repair is on your plow truck. But like, I I think that like is a really great metaphor then for like farming. Like it's like, all right, I got all my, you know, we used to do like tomato starts and I was like, all right, what the hell are we going to do? Like from like August. And I was like, all right, well we can do mums, which is fine. And then it'd be the like late fall. And it's like, all right, what the hell are we going to do for like four months, five months? And it's like, you know, we were a nonprofit. We didn't have to worry about money necessarily speaking because that wasn't our primary resource. But that is an issue for farmers that are in that spot where it's like, okay, the season's over. What do I do? And they start trying to diversify or they start thinking about, all right, well, I've got, I'm doing these things. I've got this space of land that's not being used. Maybe I could like grow mushrooms on it, you know, whatever, the, whatever it is. Right. And that can be really dangerous in a different way. So I know you've done some diversity in the past. Don't know if you want to speak about that. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the big thing that I would tell farmers about about diversification, we should think more about diversification across customer bases than product bases. And it's, it's speaking to the culture of, of farm to table, sustainable agriculture. We, and, and, you know, the whole farm to table thing, like farm to table in and of itself basically says you got one kind of customer. Like you should be going from your farm directly to somebody's table. You should be like, you should be like somebody's doctor. You should be the super intimate one-on-one kind of relationship. And it, it really buttonholes you into thinking, okay, I got this one kind of customer, so now I need to be able to please that customer no matter what. And usually that involves growing lots and lots of different kinds of stuff. Um, you diversify across your product base. So, you know, I started out doing every damn thing. I, I did bread. I did microgreens. I did small-scale veg. I did broilers. I did pigs. I did friggin' ducks at one point. Like, Oh, ducks? I did friggin' You're a madman. Me to drink. Um, so obviously I don't do ducks. But you know, we 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 do this thing where we we try to diversify in order to be able to satisfy this this very particular type of client, and we kill ourselves doing it because we we've kind of tied our hands in terms of thinking about what if I sold door-to-door farmers markets, independent restaurants? What if I tried to get into grocery stores, regional wholesalers, and maybe a giant wholesaler like Sodexo? We tend not to think about diversifying that way because Sodexo is evil. The regional wholesalers are evil. They're part of the bad system. But there's, in, in my view, nothing wrong with taking 
a product that's grown in a quote unquote regenerative way in a sustainable way and getting it to a distributor or, or some other kind of like middleman, middlemen aren't always terrible, getting it to someone who is going to get it to the rest of your community at a price they can actually afford. Like that, that's kind of like the secret is if we can use scale and specialization to scale up across a larger view of a landscape. So if you've got someone who's specializing in poultry, somebody who's specializing in grain, somebody who's specializing in this, specializing in that, across a landscape, you have a balanced ecosystem, especially if you're working together and not just doing this lazy fair, you know, you do your thing, you do your thing, but we're deciding, okay, grains make sense on this farm this year. It makes sense on this farm another year. Livestock makes sense here. Water work and fishery makes, makes sense here. If you're doing that in a coordinated way, you can treat this place the way indigenous people treat it in an ecosystem in a market context. And you can grow at a scale that will allow you to, you're not going to match. <laughs> you're never, ever, ever going to really match conventional agriculture um, because they, they, they're they they're sending the bill to the planet, basically, and making the planet carry the call. So like, there's no way you're going to make that up. Um, which is why I can't stand what's his name, Gabe Brown or whatever, talking about that he could like <laughs> he could produce regenerative, you know, regenerative poultry and grains and all this stuff at a lower cost point than conventional because I don't use inputs and blah blah blah. It's like, dude, shut up. Then where <laughs> is it, right? Right. It's like you you could like get rid of all the inputs you want, but the bill that conventional egg sends to the planet is so damn big, you will never beat it by not using chemicals or like antibiotics or whatever the hell. Anyway, um, that, that's a whole rabbit hole. But you can get close enough. You can get close enough to their prices for people to give it a second look. Because, you know, people, you know, if, if you're like a buyer at a food lion or probably not a Whole Foods, they're weird. But like think about like an Aldi or, you know, one of, one of the like discount type supermarkets or like a buyer for uh, a buyer for Sodexo or in my area, like um, – I don't know, standard produce or, or Kini produce or something like that. If you can get something that has the story that the food that's coming in here is produced at a living wage by people who live in this area, who have a career path that takes them from a 20-year-old to a retired 65-year-old, that's produced in a regenerative way that does not degrade landscapes, that puts money back in its community by having these high wages and, and by bringing money, like they can sell that story at a 15, 20% premium. They can't sell it at like a four, five, six, 10X premium. So if we can use scale and, and scale and specialization is the only thing you're going to use to get in that range where you're able to compete and make like a big time distributor go, wait, really? Um, <laughs> like, you know, I've got a quote from PFG for eggs for like, you know, 299, yours are like 320. I think I can make up that difference. Because when you know when they sell that end product, you know the the price goes up by like I don't know like eight nine ten percent or whatever. But it's got these faces attached to it. People who maybe you know, who you've heard of, who you can get your hands on. People will pay that price. Even working class people will pay that price because it won't kill them. Because <laughs> you know it's like a difference of a few cents or maybe a dollar, and not like eight nine ten dollars every single week. The only way you get there is specialization. The only way you get there is scale. So like when you're talking about specializing, like number one, just just get over the idea that it's a bad thing to do. You don't need to, you know, and, and you talked when we talked about kind of the pre-notes that there's different ways to layer and manage risk and diversify. It's like I said, you don't have to grow mushrooms and livestock and honey and all this other stuff. Like 
you can specialize in this one thing and grow enough of it where you could land anyone from Sodexo all the way down to that farm to table consumer and everybody in between. And when one of those goes away, you still have the others. Um, and I feel like that's a lot more safe and secure than than the other way, which is, all right, I'm going to I'm going to do a diversified livestock operation. I'm going to have pigs. I'm going to have cattle. And I'm going to have chickens. And if one of them shits the bed, then I'm going to be all right because the other two like that's not usually how that's going to work. Like if you <laughs> if you have three lines of business and one of them like disappears on you for whatever reason, you're screwed <laughs> in, in a business where the margins are as low as they are right now, like. If you slaughtered like 15 pigs and suddenly there's nowhere for them to go, they're taking up all the rooms in your in room in your freezers. You fed them already. You've got all the infrastructure for them already. Like it's not going to get better <laughs> because you have chicken and, and whatever. It's just you're going to go broke slightly less quickly. Yeah. It could actually be worse for you because it could feed this delusion that you're actually making it when you're not. So if, if you, you know, for you have people who are risk averse and want to diversify in something, fine, but diversifying your customers, not in your product base. But this issue kind of goes, it goes deeper than just like filling in your slow periods. And you know, specialization is the purpose of society. Like we, we get together <laughs> because you're good at one thing, you're good at another thing. Why don't we combine those things so that we can, so that we can all live better lives instead of each of us trying to be self-sufficient and and kind of do everything do everything ourselves and there's a uh i don't know like a like a conflict you know within the left like the the left when it comes to and even the right really i mean the, the whole spectrum of homesteading and, and farm to table usually revolves around this whole self-sufficiency stick but on the left we also have this idea that you know, with agriculture, we want to have like reasonable workloads, and we want to have living wages, and we want to be able to retire at a decent you know point in our lives, and and like we want to have the nice things. If you want the nice things, you have to specialize. If you're trying to do everything, you're you're going to kill yourself. If, if you're going to try to like run a whole entire ecosystem on one farm and try to produce every single thing that it can, you are going to kill yourself. You will not make it to 40. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So if you want that 35, 40 hour work week, you got to specialize in something. You got to be able to hand stuff off. You have to have like really like good systems that don't lend themselves to doing 15, 20 different things on the same landscape. You want a living wage, you want to retire by 65, you want to take off for a month or six weeks for vacation or whatever, you want parental leave, you want any of that stuff, you've got to specialize to the point where you've got so much product and so much cash flow that you can afford to do it without being like this, like, you know, just stressed out because your cash flow is so tight because you've got no backup because you've got 20 things you got to do instead of like one or two. Yeah. So that's what I'll say about specialization. It is, it is so, so, so necessary if agriculture is going to achieve those stated goals of reasonable to good quality of life without being born rich. Yeah. So you, you brought up two points that I think are in, worth talking about. I mean, everything you said was worth talking about, but two things that came to mind as you were talking. The first is this idea of like despecialization and like, you know, if you're trying to talk about numbers working, like the idea of capital investment when you diversify is astounding, especially at the scale that you know those the small farm to table movement is talking about. You know, if you're if you're buying equipment to do, you know, I mean, you've you've done pigs, you've done cattle, you've done sheep. Are you using the same fencing for all of them? 
Probably not. Uh, you know what I mean? Like there, there's so many pieces that go into it that are just like fundamentally mismatched with this idea of diversification. You have bees. Look at the equipment that you need to buy just to produce honey. Like it is not insignificant. And those are the things I think that get lost because people are not thinking about their sunk cost at all. They're saying, hey, I've got this equipment. That's only another $2,000, but look how much more money I can make. Instead of saying, hey, I've now spent X amount of money on equipment, but I'm still not making any more money. Why does? Why am I investing more money to not change anything fundamentally, right? I think that's really important to like understand. And again, going back to this idea of like business and how we don't treat the cottage industry of farming or the cottage industry side of farming as a business in a lot of ways. The second piece that you brought up is this idea that the left and the right also have this really weird relationship with specialization. You know, when I was younger, I used to be really into reading theory and all this kind of stuff. I, I moved away from it as I got older. But I've always been really into like the more economic side of things. So like I'd read like Adam Smith and so on. And you know, everyone's familiar with the idea of like Adam Smith talking about like the invisible hand. And that's been kind of co-opted as this idea of like the free market. Whereas I don't really think that's what he meant. My reading on it was that he meant like the collective unconsciousness of organizing, of community building was what kind of guided that more, you know, at the time, you know, you talk about more of like a cottage type industry in a small town. But the idea was that you understood the market needs and your place within the market where you specialized. You know, if there are three carpenters, one of you specializes in tables, the other in chairs and whatever else, you know. Whereas we don't have that because we don't have community. And I think a lot of this fundamentally boils down to this idea of we don't, we're, we're so isolated, which we talked about at the beginning of this, that the idea of specializing feels like isolation when it shouldn't be. It should be finding our where we fit as a piece in this bigger puzzle. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the, the more you specialize, the more you have to depend on other people. And, that, and that's where I think the toxicity of our culture kind of kicks us in the ass is that nobody wants to be dependent on anybody. Because we're in this, like you said, the invisible hand, to me, the way I read it when I read Smith, was the invisible hand is basically greed is good. People acting in their own self-interest will, as an invisible hand, move the society towards like, you know, higher planes or whatever the hell, or greater comforts, whatever. But the whole idea was that you looking out only for yourself was what makes everything better. It's what's made everything bigger. It's given us air conditioning, but that's about it. It's also given We used us- to not need it, so there's that too. Exactly. It's like, it's, it was the thing like capitalism is like firefighters that set fire to the town. Um, <laughs> it's like, we solve our own problems that we created for no reason. You know, it's, it's like the, the more self-sufficient you get, it, it's weird. Like the more you feed into the, that idea of being isolated and alienated, like, I don't need you, screw you. Like it, it's this whole attitude towards the world of like, screw everybody. Um, you know, it's, it's the same fear and anxiety that drives people to kind of go the other way and get as rich as possible so that I can have a God complex and do whatever I want. I don't have to need anybody. I just buy whatever the hell I want. Like money is it. It's the same kind of thread that drives both of those behaviors. Where there's people who are trying to amass this kind of self-sufficiency in terms of homesteading and having their own land and skills and blah, 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 or people just trying to do it with money, trying to do it the fast way. So, you know, it's the more we do that, the, the more we kind of fall down into that. The thing you mentioned earlier, though, about like <laughs> the idea that people kind of don't think in the economic sense about you know, the, the, the sunk cost issue and, and like what it means to deploy money one way towards another way. You know, the, the best way to send somebody with this self-sufficiency like 
nature eco kind of mindset run toward the hills is to mention marginal analysis ah like marginal analysis is like it's what every like you shouldn't go into business if you don't know what the hell that is it's if you have five thousand dollars what's the best way to spend it to produce the return you want within the context that you want that return so i have to think about that all the time like whenever i'm getting ready to buy say pork from somebody because i don't raise pigs anymore because i got tired of being in the damn street so i buy it from other people and if I'm going to like spend $5,000 to buy five or six pigs from somebody to resell, I got to think to myself, all right, if I sell those pigs after my own labor, co-packing, put it in the freezers, blah, 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 like I'm probably going to make like 9% or so off of that. What else could I do with $5,000 to make 9% within the context of what I want to do? Because like I could gamble it. <laughs> I could make 100% or 200% or I could lose all of it. I could... Uh, I could put it in a stock market and let it sit there for a year and maybe make like 12 or 13%, depending on where the market is. I could put it into cattle and just use it as stock of cattle. You know, $5,000 will buy me like five head of cow. In the way prices are in two years, like I could double that money. Or I could put that money into, into cold storage. And so I'd be able to specialize more. Like instead of raising 15,000 chickens, I could maybe raise 20,000 chickens. Or I could bring on a new partner. So when you've got like that $5,000, there's so many things you could do with it. And you have to have a framework that allows you to make intelligent decisions about what to do with that money and have a damn good reason for doing what you're doing. Because I could like, you know, the $5,000 that I just spent on pigs, I could absolutely spend somewhere else. Um, you know, I could put more freezers back here. I could do some more crap. Like cold storage is my biggest problem right now, but I have to have a decision-making framework that says my relationship with this farmer is more important over the long term because I'm trying to convince this person to do like X, Y, and Z over the next five years. So that five grand is worth it. Um, most people don't have like a flow chart kind of decision-making apparatus to do that. They're mostly doing it based on, ah, uh, fuck, like, <laughs> my customers are going to bail if I don't have everything. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to, like I said, I'm, I ain't worried about time. So I'm going to keep talking about this. I had somebody that approached me recently that had something happen to them that was the same thing that happened to me recently, which was they had somebody who was in their CSA program who left, um, like they had like a meat CSA, kind of like I have. And somebody left because some vegetable producer decided to get into broilers. And so now this person could go and like they could get their veg and their and their meat at the same place. So, you know, they said, you know, Tulu, I love what you're doing, but it's more convenient for me to go over here. She freaked out. <laughs> She's like... I need to diversify because, you know, if, if I can't offer everything that people want, then they're going to freaking leave. And this is why diversifying across, and we're getting back into the diversification specialization thing, but this is why specialization and diversifying across customer bases is so necessary. Because when the same thing happened to me, when somebody bounced away from me because they wanted to go to, I forget what it was, like butcher box or something like that, like somebody that had like all this shit, I, I'll tell them right now, I don't want that customer. I don't want the customer that expects me with my like, you know, three quarters of a million dollars in revenue to be like Walmart or ButcherBox, which makes, I forgot how much money they made, but it's an ungodly amount of money because they source from like four countries in all 50 states. A customer that wants you to be that will kill you. So instead, I'm going to produce at a scale where it's like, all right, you're not going to buy my chicken because you can't buy vegetables for me or because you can't buy lamb or friggin' bison or whatever the hell this person wanted. You can't do that. And I'm going to lose that customer. But because I'm producing so much poultry and because, like, let's say I'm producing so many eggs, I can actually put 
a bid in front of like Aramark or Sodexo, or I can approach Food Lion and say, hey, can I bring you like 14 cases of eggs a week? So that person that just snatched that one customer away from me will never ever in a million years be able to compete with me up the customer supply chain because I'm operating at that scale. And that's why I get to sleep at night. And when customers want me to act like I'm Amazon or Walmart or whatever, I can just say, buy and let some other farmer drive themselves crazy <laughs> trying to grow 60 or 70 different things on like on some small landscape with free labor or whatever else the hell they're doing. Anyway, that's a that's like a long road back to the whole specialization and scale thing. But it's why it's so important. You know, as as long as we're trying to cater to this kind of high dollar, high spending customer that's going to expect you over time to either supply what a Walmart can supply, like that full product catalog, or you're going to spend all this time educating the consumer about why they should be satisfied with the fact that you don't have what they want. Neither of those work. You should not expect to be Walmart and you should not become an educator. You're a fucking farmer and you should be diversifying across your product catalog so that your food can get to everybody, whether you're delivering it to the door of some rich guy in Chevy Chase or whether it's winding up in Walmart for like $4 a dozen. At scale, you can make those numbers work. Yeah. And I think this all really boils down to like pragmatism, right? About what you can realistically do. And I, I think across the whole spectrum of what we've talked about is like pragmatism and even being pragmatic about being pragmatic. Uh, like this very like meta idea of like, we don't want to be so pragmatic that what we're doing is meaningless, but also things are complicated. The world is complicated. The food system is complicated. Your buyers are complicated. The people you hire are complicated. And trying to do any of this is really difficult but necessary in the sense of like, we can't, again, to go back to how we started this conversation, we can't be buried in theory and this philosophical idea of like, well, this is how we should be doing things. And that means we need to like actually go and do things and be vulnerable and be imperfect and try to build things with imperfect people. And they, they might not have the same exact vision of the world as we do, but that's okay. We're not, if, you know, we, we have to navigate the difference between identifying people that are identical to us in our political opinions and so on and like people that are totally off the chart of you know how we feel about sustainable food and politics and race and all these other things that can muddy up conversations pretty quickly so i want to ask a little bit about your thoughts on like building systems and being pragmatic and kind of how that might influence the way people move forward how it's influenced how you've moved forward and trying to figure out the best way to do any of this. When you're starting, uh, like a lot of people do, which is with relatively little, especially when you're coming in, into agriculture, it's best to start small and it, and it is best to kind of find your tribe. You know, it, it is important to be able to reconcile differences with people and, and ultimately at a, at a society level to figure out how differing opinions and visions of the world are going to coexist together but when you're trying to build something, when you have an agenda, when you have something that you're trying to take from your mind and make real in the world, and you're trying to do that with limited resources of money, time, you know, all of that, the people who you're doing it with, like they, they have to be your people. They have to get it. They have to be very much like you at least in terms of what you're going after, like the specific thing you're going after. And your personalities have to be complementary. 
you know, if necessary, like if you have somebody who's ex- like in a co-op kind of situation, like I tend to be extremely extroverted. I like people. I'm energized by people. So I'm, I'm kind of naturally good at sales. I'm good at marketing. I'm good at storytelling. But I'm also like aggressively ADHD. I'm really bad at like detail. I can't keep appointments. Um, I forget things all the time. So that tends to make me kind of a bad farmer, oddly enough, um, which is why like when, when I created this co-op, you know, the, the people who I'm in the co-op with are, you know, I, I'd call a couple of the people fairly introverted, which is which is and like really detail oriented and, and like very, very like, you know, they're very like this nearsighted in a good way. They're better farmers than me because of it. And so kind of with, with our powers combined, our personalities combined and rowing in the same direction, like it, it creates a very good and positive situation where we can focus on building and not on resolving our personal conflicts. But when you're trying to build something, like at some point, it is going to have to interface with the world around you. Like the world around me right now is like I'm in deep red Virginia. You know, I'm, I'm like this weird little isolated island where like <laughs> black people and queers and like all these, like this very diverse group of people comes together in this very red area that is very much Trump country and is building this thing. And, you know, we're, we're, we're selling to anybody. We have to decide how are we going to engage with, you know, people who aren't us, whether that involves including them in what we're doing excluding them from what we're doing in certain ways, but including them in other ways? Like, do do people outside of us, are they just customers? Are they potential employees? Are they potential partners? Can they be advisors? Should we have an educational component to like slowly pick at their biases maybe? Do we want to do that? Do we want to view other people as like, I don't know, failed attempts at being us? Is that a good thing? Works in progress. Right, like that's that's something you've got to decide. Do you want to win converts or do you want to just learn to coexist? Because sometimes you, sometimes you just have to exist with hostile neighbors. Like that's life. That, that's something you have to get over and you, you do diplomacy the best you can, but you're never always going to be best friends with people. And you're certainly never going to get people to drink your Kool-Aid and like join your thing. Like I, I always tell people like the five nations are the five nations, not one. Um, like even they, like with all their stuff, were like, all right, you stay your ass on the eastern door, you stay your ass on the western door, we'll keep the fire, and the two of you just try not to hurt anybody. Like that was that was kind of how the five nations organized themselves. And you know, they they found a way to make it work. Like, how do you interface with people who have some things in common with you, some people who don't? And you've you've got to sit down and figure out how that works. But in terms of like practically building something, like do not be afraid to say, I, I need people who get it. You do not need to be in the business of like trying to give people chances or like trying to do the Kennedy thing and having a, like a council of competitors or whatever the hell. Like you don't have <laughs> the resources of the executive branch of the United States government. So like let your cabinet reconcile the differences. Like for me, I'm the nigga from D.C. and I got eight dollars <laughs> and I got to spend it real well. Um, so, you know, you, you the, the fewer resources you have, the more you have to get your people decisions dead on because you get fewer chances to fail. So I don't know, that, that's, that's the practical advice. When you're, when you're going to build something, like make sure the people who you are in it with are, they're in it to build it. You, you've worked with them before, you know their personalities, you know what they're all about. And they're more than just talk um, because there's, there's a lot of people out there who just run their freaking mouths and, and they, don't, they don't do shit. Like they, they sell themselves really well. 
but one of the things I, I like to tell people when, when they ask me about our interviewing process for like for, for hiring people here is one of the last things I'll ask myself is if it, if the person that I just talked to and like research, because it's not just your interview, like I'm going to dig into your history. I want to find your references. I want to look you up on social media. Like I'm going to find your ass. Uh, <laughs> I used to work. I used to work for the NSA. Like I, I can find out shit about people. But <laughs> but like if this person didn't get to talk. And the only thing that could speak for them was what they did and who they affected. Would you still hire if they didn't get to like give you their used car salesman spiel? And usually that tells you what you need to know. Um, so don't be afraid to, to like basically say no to people and be like, you're not the one and you're not the one right now. The Internet's created a mess of things for for, for trying to self-identify for trying to build community for all these different things like as nice as it is um i'm not sure if it's a net positive or not to be completely honest it's it's probably closer to neutral than anything uh which is kind of disappointing given like how much it's a part of our lives now yeah i i totally agree with that it's for every good thing about (laughs) about what all this networking has brought in I i can think of at least one bad thing so I don't know. But then again, I'm back on Instagram. So like there must be something good about it. Like there's something. I- we brought you back. Suckered <laughs> you in. You, Honestly, had, my- you, you had to talk about chestnuts. So you had to come back. It was chestnuts. <laughs> and uh, no, it was really like a really narrow. Interest. It was my damn chefs. Like most of them were like, dude, I want to place orders on Instagram. <laughs> because like, when I'm sitting over the stove, like that's when I think about things. I don't want to send you a text. I know the pink dot is you and I want to send you this message that I need 20 chickens like in 12 hours. Um, so that's what got me back on Instagram. Then I just couldn't shut up. So here we are. Here we are. Um, so now we're getting to the last end of this and I'm a little bit nervous about it <laughs> because it's so I have like a list of things that I'd, met, I'd sent over to Chris about like kind of here's kind of the stuff I want to talk about. And he like put a couple bullet points here and there. This last question I have, he didn't put anything. So I might be getting publicly crucified. I don't know. We're going to find out. So I want to talk about this whole like decolonizing thing that exists on the internet and off the internet, theoretically, you know, land back and rematriation and indigenizing all these like very like loaded buzzwords that are all over the internet about like, how do we fix everything? And then it's, it kind of falls back on these things without like any further depth about it. You know, people put you you post this big complicated thing and the response is like land back and it's like well okay but like what what are we actually going to do though or you know I'm on unseated blah 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 lands like all these things make people feel better but like they're not really any solutions and they don't really address any of the fundamental issues of like the fact that the United States exists as it does and indigenous people have been you know shoved to the margins of society economically and culturally and like all these really complicated issues that exist, I'm basically going to give you a a platform to kind of talk about this a little bit and, you know, oh, talk shit about the internet if you want. I don't care. Go for it. Uh, well, don't, don't worry about me crucifying you. I, everybody that meets me in person says I'm a lot quieter and a lot nicer than, than I seem on the internet. <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't write anything in response to your question because honestly, it was a good question and I didn't, I didn't know how to answer it. Like... As an indigenous person, I, I look at what decolonization has become in the hive mind of the fucking internet, and it's a, it's a shit show. Like nobody knows what the hell they're talking about. Ah, ah, God! Like where do you begin with this? 
you know, decolonization, decolonization has kind of shit the bed when there are people who I have actually talked to who don't see it, decolonization being it, as rooted specifically in indigenous people in cultures. They're like, decolonization is like anti-capitalism. Decolonization is anti-scale. Decolonization is eradicating private property. Decolonization is uh, such and such thing about like gender equality or whatever. And I've heard people say out loud that that like basically what does indigenous culture have to do with it? And and it's like one of those things where it's like, what do you say to that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I sit here like not being able to believe what I'm hearing. It's it's like we hear the thing in Florida. Slavery was good for black people. It's, Gave them skills. Uh, we were supposed to have flying cars and lightsabers, and instead we're back to talking about why slavery maybe wasn't so great. Like, <laughs> you're, you're stepping so far back. Anyway, I mean, here's the thing. I feel like decolonization, has it, it's been co-opted as a term that people deploy to express their frustration with society as it exists today. It, it's, it's a catch-all. When you talk, for me, when somebody says decolonization, when I think about the roots of where decolonization came from, decolonization started as an assertion of indigenous cultural values in spite of decidedly non-indigenous cultural values that drive everything about life today. And we talked a little about a little bit about that earlier. Like we, we talked about anxiety, fear, aggrandizement, growth for growth's sake. You know, this misanthropy that drives people to want to be either self-sufficient or super rich or both. Decolonization is a pushback against that, but not it, it's not just being the uncapitalist or or I don't know. I've even heard people calling communism decolonization, which is the funniest thing I've ever heard in my life um, for so many reasons. But no, de- decolonization, the, the idea that these the idea that these things that we're living with are bad are rooted in a positive assertion of indigenous culture and values and worldview. I don't know how someone who hasn't been taught by indigenous elders, who doesn't speak an indigenous language, who hasn't been through Hoskanawa or who hasn't been through the process of becoming, um, because, you know, it's, indigenization being indigenous is it's not just genetic it's it's cultural like we don't pop out of the womb with this magical relationship with nature and reciprocity because i know some awful awful native people with native blood um who don't subscribe to their to their own cultural inheritance at all like it's a process that you have to go through and you spend your life going through it and it causes you to look at the world in a fundamentally different way. I, I've talked in, in my now deleted old Instagram about a little bit about what decolonization is and, and, and what indigenization is. Because the other thing I don't like about decolonization as a concept is like decolonization. It just means like undoing colonization. It doesn't necessarily say what's what replaces it, which is how people get this idea. It's like, well, what do indigenous people have to do with decolonization? Um, you know, people don't know what happens if they undo the colon. Like, what what gets plugged in there into the vacuum? And people who know, you know, the indigenous people who came up with decolonization know what they want to plug into that. They have positive cultural values and worldview that they walk through the world with all the time and cannot take off 
you know, that, that's a part of that. So when I talk in my old Instagram about what the hell is decolonization, it's, it's basically this fundamental commitment to what I call universal reciprocity, that you, you live your life in a way where you try to keep balance between everything. So if you're, you're given a new day to be alive, you give thanks for it. You give tobacco for it. You cleanse yourself to speak with creation. If you take something out of the earth, you put something back. If you have a relationship where you take something from someone, you give something back and you never forget. It's a thing that causes you to live your life more slowly. I've talked in my Instagram before about how the term for white people showing up. Part of the root of that word is fast moving. Like that's what characterizes the culture that's been created by the white power structure in this country. It's so damn fast. Nobody is thinking about each other. Nobody's thinking about their relationships with all the other living and non-living things around them. It's just like, I'm busy, 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 busy. Got to get to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, because there's all this anxiety, 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 whereas native people are characterized by, you know, and even black people to an extent, honestly, like there's a little bit of like default decolonization in the fact that black people ain't never on time. We ain't (laughs) never on time anywhere. We ain't going to be in a hurry. Like, because we're going to do what we're going to do. And with indigenous people, like the way that we're taught to interact with people is that you take your time to think about your interactions with people and like the state of balance with everything around you. Um, And this isn't like some kumbaya kind of thing where you're supposed to like get along with everybody. You never have conflict. Like part of that reciprocity is that dude did me dirty. I want to fuck him later. Like that's part of it. Like that is absolutely part of it. Um, but it's it's having the time to, to understand that everything you do is going to have an action and you have to make sure that those things stay in balance. And it's living your whole life with that as what guides you and drives you and how you see the world. And and that takes a lifetime. It's not it's not a slogan that you're going to pick up and internalize because somebody memed about it on the Internet. And like this, this is how most people learn about decolonization. Like they, they send you this thing that's on Instagram <laughs> and like, it's usually about some, I don't know, like something that's not about what I'm talking about. Like it's usually some anti-capitalist kind of thing or like some like private property is bad. Landlords are bad. Uh, monoculture is bad. Like people are talking about decolonization as, as like abolishing monocultures, which is crazy to me. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I've seen that one. Yeah, it's it's like whatever whatever drives me crazy. The opposite of that is decolonization. Like that that's what that's what it is in most people's heads. Some people think like anarchism is is decolonization is indigenous. It's fucking not. Like it's I don't know. It's it's like decolonization is is something that is out of reach of most people, and it's not it's not because we're special. Because in, indigenous people. We're born indigenous, and those of us who are fortunate enough to be connected to our culture, we're we're born with a different set of like goggles that we use to look at the world. And and I hope that people can learn from it. <clears throat> There's a lot that people can learn from it and can learn to to kind of walk on the earth in a different way. But the way it's been co-opted now to, like you said, like to signal virtue by putting in your Twitter profile, I'm on unseated Piscataway land. I had to jump on somebody about why even saying shit like that is a problem. Like, you know, the Piscataway is like 13 different, you know, sub-tribes. A lot of them don't get along. Like, they they find ways to coexist, but like they were blanket called the Piscataway by like Charles Calvert, who came over here in the 1600s and was like, I ain't calling y'all by 13 different names. You're the Piscataway now. 
Like, you're going to decolonize by calling us the name that the colonizers said because you couldn't be bothered to learn our real names. And that's in your Twitter profile because you're so woke. Like, come on, come on, man. So, yeah, it's been co-opted as this thing to, like, express your virtue and to, like, you know, kind of piss off with your anxiety or whatever and, and say that you're raging against the machine. And, you know, fine, but I don't like how it, how it's been disconnected from, from the people who are carrying the culture and who know what this uncolonization would be uncolonization would be replaced with because nine tenths of the people talking about it have no idea what the hell they're talking about. Yeah. I, I've personally strayed away from using the term. Basically. I don't think I've ever used it ever to be, <laughs> to be honest. Everybody's used it once. It's like, it's like weed. Everybody's done it at least once. And yeah. it's okay. I mean, maybe, but like, <laughs> it, it's just like, to your point, like I never really could get a full grasp on what it really meant to to like because you see it used in so many different ways the same with land back i think is like a really good example like when land back became a term it had a very specific definition of meet the tr- the agreements that the treaties were set out to meet for indigenous people that's all we're asking is that you know these are the things we agreed to that's what we want held up very simple very easy to get behind and now land back means like all, all these different things and like makes it really difficult to like, you know, are, are you doing this symbolically or is this something you actually think is going to happen in the world? And even if it did happen in the world, the other piece of it is like, you've, you've basically fucked the entire ecology of the country. And you're just like, here, it's your, like, if you borrowed someone's car and returned it and the roof is missing, like that, that's basically what you're doing when you're saying like land back, we're going to hand the land back over. Like, Great, thanks. Thanks for uh, giving it back. You know, I'll fix it. Don't worry about it. And it's just those, both of those are just like every time I feel like I have a conversation about them, it's just like for me as a, a white dude, it's like really difficult to navigate because like I'm a white dude and like that's fine. But also, like, how do you do it and like be realistic about these like very abstract, like radical ideas in a way that's like, well, I. I, I want to actually see things change. So what is what are we actually trying to accomplish? We we can have a utopia, right? That's fine. But also we need to pair that with like meaningful steps that are like doing something important. Yeah, yeah. It's I don't know, like the whole decolonization thing, land back, I, I think has fallen victim to <laughs> the same thing the chestnut has. <laughs> and regenerative agriculture. Like it started as this one very specific practical thing, and then people decide like that's getting hot, like that's trending. So I'm going to attach my ship to it. And enough time goes by and suddenly it doesn't mean anything <laughs> because now everybody's just attaching their own agenda to it. It becomes bloated and overweight. And, you know, it's, it's everything now. It's, it's the friggin' I don't know. It's like the X app of friggin' social justice now. Like it's supposed to be everything, but it actually doesn't do shit to piss people off. So that, that's where we're kind of at with it. Like, yeah, land back start is a, is a very, very specific thing about treaty rights in a very specific place. You can basically trace it back to, to who came up with the term, um, whose name I don't recall at the moment, but I, I remember that that's how I that's how I came across it. But that's just that's just what happens when you name things. Like I, I've got I've got a uh, something coming on our Patreon soon about about why we should be focused on unnaming things. Stop trying to like be able to talk in shorthand about stuff. You talk about decolonization. There's this book that I recommend everybody read. It's called A Yupiak Worldview. And it's where this linguist spends a bunch of time with people. Um, I'm sorry, it's wisdom sits in places, Yupiak Worldview or something. 
Wisdom Sits in Places is a book where a linguist spends some time with um, some people, I forget what band of the Apache, and they they talk about the importance of, of expressive language. There's almost no shortcuts to refer to anything in, in that language. And that's actually true of my language, too, in Lenape. Like, it, it's really hard to come up with shorthand for things. Um, there, there's kind of a cultural bent against grouping things like you know you call things exactly what they are it's kind of like the whole thing like the inuit have like god knows how many words for like different kinds of snow and water uh things like that um i think if people want to the funny thing about decolonization is that if if people want to start taking baby steps toward toward actually doing it it's to call things what they are in specificity at length without trying to like wrap things into a term (laughs) that's easy to like plug into social media like get used to talking and running your mouth and expressing yourself and talking about things like talk about things like what they actually are. I think one of the like tying back into how does like, for example, decolonization work with co-ops and, and agribusiness and, and social entrepreneurship. One of the things I'm wondering how it's going to go when uh, when Blackbird, when my co-op starts doing like routine meetings is I want to do the indigenous thing, which is when you meet with people you go on at length about the entire course of your relationship. So like you don't go into a meeting and you say, okay, this is what we're going to talk about. This is the agenda, blah, blah, blah. You walk in and you say, you know, I met you five years ago when you were doing blah, blah, blah. And this is how I felt when you said that. And so we corresponded. And then I said this, and you told me that this is how you felt. And like these meetings can go on (laughs) because you're, you're talking about like you're, you're remembering who each other are. So that the business of the day doesn't like just completely trump the rest of your relationship. Like you're pissed off. Like let's say, like you know, let's say you and me like get into an argument about you know chestnuts, chestnuts, fucking chestnuts. Like we're like this close, we're like ah, screw that guy. Like, but when you come together, like in council, you talk about hey, the first time I met you was when you said this thing about blah, blah, blah on, on Instagram. And that really spoke to something that I was thinking about. And it made me feel, you know, it made me feel really good that I felt heard and I wasn't the only person like speaking into the void. And then when such and such happened to me, like you were one of the only people that like really had my back and like wouldn't like, you know, jump over the freaking character assassination bridge and blah, blah, blah. And then you remember like, I don't need to be pissed off at this guy about chestnuts. Like, but, but you kind of- have- Not yet. Not yet. (laughs) Until you try to plant one in my yard, then I'll shoot you. But like, you know, when you take that time to slow down and consider the whole of your relationship, you kind of remember like whatever the issue of the day is now, how big or how small is that compared to your whole relationship? And and it causes you to to not shoot off so damn fast. And it's, 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 I think that's one of the most practical ways that people want to like, use an indigenous framework for dealing with people in like a social justice or uh, food sovereignty or a cooperative, like, you know, with all the intimacy that, that comes with that. I think that's the one piece you should take. Like if you want to use it practically, but decolonization, you know, more broadly, just, just as this thing where people use it to describe what they don't like and to say that there's this amorphous solution that they can't really describe with any intelligence. Like, you got to stop that shit. <laughs> you know? But I, I think that's just a byproduct of the internet and fast, I guess, like fast food culture almost of like the way we consume shit on the internet, like quickly, the, the you know, the opposite of what you're talking about, right? That we, media is created for social media 
and the shelf life is nothing. If you don't produce stuff all the time, you you become irrelevant. And conversely, that content becomes irrelevant. I mean, you think about like you know, we're talking about land back. I feel like I feel like you don't hear about it as much as you used to. Like even a year ago, like that that shelf life of land back was very short. Uh, when it was the only thing people were talking about a year two years ago, and now it's like nothing. And that speaks to the fact that like these. These ideas that are complex and long-lived and multi-generational are being treated like these consumables with no context. And this flattening of history, this flattening of place, this flattening of all of our relationships that just makes everything more difficult and really feeds into that isolationist feeling that social media really perpetuates. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. You know, nothing, nothing survives longer than like a, a, a news cycle now. That's kind of how that is. Like, I feel like land back was like the thing to talk about, like in the mainstream news for maybe a couple of weeks. And then like within the like niche of people that want to talk about that, it, it might last like six months in it and it's gone. No, yeah. it talks about that. The land acknowledgements have gone away, which I'm, uh, you know, I'm happy with. I hated them damn things. <laughs> uh, I got in an argument with my dad about the fact that he kept doing them. But, you know, it, it, it is what it is. And it's, it's something that we have to actively work against like like you said by figuring out with something like decolonization what about indigenous cultures can we use to to slow down and actually and and make this culture into something that resembles something that was here and that was more sustainable more human-centered and break as much as we can free from this this cycle of just endless consumption that that frankly i mean it's driven by it's driven by fear of privation. People are afraid to stop. Um, I have this. I have this conversation with, with my wife all the time. Like she, she's, she's always wanting to do more. She's, she's feeling like you know she might leave something on the table. She has a real hard time just like chilling out. My favorite way to drive her nuts is when I'll go home and I'll just stare. Like it drives her insane. Like I'm not, I'm not doing anything. Not on the phone. Not reading. Not watching TV. Just it's like there and i do it i do it to drive her crazy but it's even hard for me to do because like nobody's immune from the culture like you know you can be as indigenous as you want but you you swim in the water you swim in and right now those waters are decidedly colonized and capitalized and this is you know it's it's something everybody has to work against and just going towards the whole cooperative thing it's better when we work against that that culture together instead of all by ourselves so what you're saying is you do radical rest, but you talk shit about radical rest. <laughs> I contain multitudes. <laughs> <laughs> so no, uh, seriously though, like it, it, you brought this up, and the first thing I thought of was like my dad, like growing up, he's from Italy and like grew up there, and like is very offline, which is great for him. I'm very jealous. Like he would go when I was a kid, he would like sit in the garage with the garage doors open. And there was like this little strip of land between us and our neighbors that was like these pine trees and like stacks of tires because somebody would just dump tires there. So there was just like fucking tires and rats everywhere. And uh, he would just like sit there and look at the tires for like hours. I'm like, what are you doing? It's like, just relaxing. It's like, okay, I'm going to go play Nintendo or whatever I was doing. But like, yeah, like this idea of like just disconnecting and like appreciating like existing mm-hmm. is like really important. And in the world we live in today, that's so hard to do. Uh, even if you recognize that it's important, like trying to figure out how do I like just not 
go on social media if I'm sitting still and like not doing something else. Like that's that's like your default state is like, oh, I'm in the bathroom, pull out my phone. You know, like wherever you are, your ju- your default state is if I'm not doing something else, I'm gonna look at my phone, and like yeah. that that's terrible. But like, yeah, we don't we don't know how to exist in negative space anymore. Like you you've always got to be doing something, even like when you're quote unquote resting. Like if I'm resting, I got to be meditating or doing like mindfulness training or like reading something or like, I got to be doing something. Nobody just like chills on the porch. (laughs) Like, like you said, you know, either looks at tires in the middle of the road or like, you know, you talk about like the whole male friend, I'm going to speak to men right now, but like, you know, men and all of our isolation and loneliness and like how hard it is to make friends as an adult male, you know, there's nobody to chill on the porch with. So there's your phone full of lovely memes that you and I put together and <laughs> share with the world contribute to the problem <laughs> because it amuses us. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's something you just, you got to push back against as best you can, but you know, I don't, I don't judge anybody that can't. Um, but for me, I don't know my, I feel like I talk out of both sides of my mouth sometimes because I, I, I very much talk about like the need for people in positions like I am, like I'm in where I'm, I'm in a relatively privileged position. And, you know, my whole thing is I want to be able to like hold the gates open long enough for other people to be able to kind of rush through and into this new society and economy that we'd like to live in. So I talk a lot about like how necessary it is to hustle, to work your ass off, like to, to push back against like, and I think I did explicitly say something about the whole like radical rest movement that the rest is the revolution. And no, it's not um, because we're, we're not there yet. Like you can rest if you, if you're already good, but you know, the whole Tony Morrison thing says is like, if you're free, it is your job to help somebody else get free. And you don't help somebody else get free by chilling in your bathtub with Epsom salts and frigging lavender candles going in the background for fuck's sake. But at the same time, like I don't, like I don't brag about working 70, 80 hour work weeks. I work real fucking hard from like 5 a.m. until about one. And then I'm done. And nobody in the world is gonna guilt me into doing more just because I, you know, they feel like I should be doing more. I'm gonna sit on my ass, I'm gonna watch Boardwalk Empire, and you can get me up if you fight me. <laughs> like that, that's about that's about it. So like, you know, both, both need to be able to coexist. Like we, and we don't need to start deluding ourselves into, I don't know, man, like the the reason I went off so bad on the whole radical rest thing is because it reminded me a lot of the whole homesteader thing where it's like, I have the privilege to make my little isolated Island of wonderfulness. And if everybody else was just like me, then the world would be fine. Like it, it feels like this narcissistic wet dream where you're just like accusing everybody of not being awesome enough to be you and therefore make the world a better place. It's like, that's, that's not how the fuck it works. Like that's selfish. Yeah. Uh, that's why I kind of flipped out about it, but there, there is a balance between it's like work your ass off with boundaries. And that's what comes up. Yeah. So like between five o'clock and one o'clock, like don't talk to me <laughs> like after one o'clock, like whatever, dude, you, you want to smoke weed. You want to, you want to get drunk. You want to fuck around, sit on the porch, talk shit, smoke chicken, cook food, bark in the moon. Like, do it. Live your life. Enjoy it. Like enjoy just being in the world because as, as shitty as things can feel, I wouldn't trade place with like my ancestors that had to live through like the early 1700s. They had it worse. The environment was better, but everything else was worse. <laughs> yeah, right. The thing about the radical rest that kind of wet up my ass was that 
it wasn't in relation to something else. The way we understand a lot of things, and like I don't think people really realize it, is that we understand and understand things in relation to other things. So when we under, like we take new terms or new ideas, we put them in context by saying, "How does this compare to the other things I already know?" And that's kind of how you squeeze in a, like those boundaries, right? But when you're talking about radical rest, there's no context other than like this vague idea that you work outside of it, right? So yeah, you work at nine to five, but what is the difference between radical rest and just like existing? And how does that relate to what makes it radical? Like how, how does it relate to any other radical activities? If you want to talk about radical rest, then it needs to be within a bigger context of how it relates to other radical stuff. Like what are you doing that designates it again, its relation to these other activities that I think gets, I wouldn't say gets lost. It doesn't even get brought up. Like it, it doesn't exist within this context. It's just a thing that somebody on the internet said once and like, was like, yeah, I'm radical resting because I worked today or whatever it was. Right. So there was a, there's a racial component to it. And like the, the radical part of radical rest, like it's, it, it's well-intended and it's one of those things like where, where I got where it's coming from. And I, I don't think it was quite, that decontextualized like radical rest if i remember correctly was coined by a black woman who framed rest in the context of black people don't get to rest like we are like and and it's not not in terms of just like work and rest but like even when black people are resting we never get to like we never get to put our guard down even when you're out like at a restaurant you 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 have to watch your blackness when you're walking down the street you got to be like you have to watch your blackness like your your blackness intersects with the world all the time in a way that can be threatening so there's that component of it but there's also like the the work component because black people again we we're kind of systematic and for anybody who doesn't know I'm indigenous but I'm also black my mama's black my dad's chopped to go Piscataway so when it's speak as indigenous, I speak as we, when I speak as black, I speak as we. Um, so there's some people are going to freak out. I thought he was Indian. Um, I'm about to get over it. But like, you know, with black folks, like th- there is a hustle culture. There's a grind culture that's very specific to black people that that's imbued just in our history of being <laughs> denied every damn thing of having to work like a working class black person, having to work like three times as hard to get the same thing as a working class white person. And this is something that has come to be eventually glorified in, in hip hop culture. Back during my grandfather's generation, like hustle was just like, it's what you did. It wasn't anything you really bragged about. It's just a fact of life. Now you, <laughs> you've got, you know, for like the last, I don't know, maybe 25, 30 years, maybe 20 to 25 years, you've had hip hop culture and, and rap like really glorifying the grind itself for its own sake. And it, it, it takes a toll on us. So between that, that idea of like constantly having to grind in order to like avoid poverty, to avoid getting your ass kicked by the man, to like get out of places that are over-policed and, and that are treated like occupied neighborhoods, like militarized neighborhoods. And between the fact that even when you're not working, even when you're not hustling, you have to constantly have this thread running in your back of like, how is my blackness intersecting with where I am right now? It's exhausting. <laughs> it's really, really exhausting. So radical rest, the radicalness of it 
was the fact that black people are expected to hustle. We're expected to suffer. Like there's all these studies about how people just assume black people, for example, especially black women can take more pain that they can like, they can just endure more. Like even children believe this, like it's, it's wild. So radical rest was this idea of like, fuck all that. Like I'm going to chill in my black skin. I'm going to rest in my black skin. That part I was fine with. The part that I was not fine with was that it didn't provide any kind of it didn't provide any kind of like practical roadmap for somebody who has to hustle to survive to participate in it. It was just I'm going to rest. You shouldn't feel guilty if you rest. But there was no this is how you can join me in the rest. <laughs> it was. I'm upper middle class. I make enough money to be able to just fuck off into my bathtub. And for somebody that can't fuck off into their bathtub because they got to work their fourth shift, it's just like, oh, like, <laughs> I'd really like to join you, but I can't because I, I got to work as an Amazon worker where I might get fired by an algorithm today. <laughs> like, there, there was no plan for that person. That's what that's what pissed me the fuck off. About. I understood the radical level. Like, for me, as a black person who grew up black and dealt with you know, all of that, like, I think radical rest is genuinely like in, in it's basically saying black people are allowed to just be joyfully black in our own skin. That, that is a revolutionary act. The idea of blackness being something other than an expression of I have overcome, I can endure this. I am resilient. I am powerful. Like the idea of just saying I am asleep and kiss my ass is revolutionary, is radical. But it it needed to go farther. It was way too bougie for me. And it, it just left most of our brothers and sisters behind. And that's why I didn't like about it. The context which I had understood it was basically memes shared by people that are white and middle class. So that's why I was like, what the this is fucking stupid. That's what happens every time. Like somebody, somebody takes something that somebody black created and they water it down. And like, even though it's problematic or whatever, they make it just so much more awful. And then they decontextualize it. And then like black folks wind up like paying the price because now like radical rest comes from a black woman and then it gets transferred to white people. And then another white person only sees the white interface to like that bastardized version of radical rest. And it's like radical rest is fucking fundamentally stupid. And like you never knew that, like the black people that were like behind it that were responsible for it. And like everybody's worse off now. <laughs> Because it got like radical rest. Became a meme. Yeah. This ties into everything we've talked about. Radical rest gets pulled out of its cultural context, neutered of its cultural context, and then just gets turned into garbage to be consumed quickly by whoever. Like that's true of chestnuts and corn and radical rest. The end. The, the <laughs> yeah. end. All right, Chris, I know you're working on a book. You've got your Patreon. You've obviously got the farm. Oh, yeah. Go plug everything you got. Okay. Uh, yes. If you are like local to uh, DC, Baltimore, Richmond, Charlottesville, Norfolk, let me feed you. Go to sylvanaquafarms.com or sylvanaqua.com. I'm so sorry. And uh, go ahead and order something. Order some meat. Order some eggs. Uh, do, do the thing. Um, support our co-op. Support, the, uh, uh, support our network of farmers that way. Um, if you're Farther away, you're more interested in food sovereignty topics, uh, stuff like that. We have a Patreon, we being me. It's just me right now, except in the winter when we get more involved doing like speaking and kind of get togethers of farmers to talk about food sovereignty during the down season. But for right now, um, it's mostly me 
writing extemporaneously on uh, on Patreon. So you can uh, support us there, patreon.com slash skywoman. Skywoman is the name of a kind of an informal project that we've put together to talk about cooperative agriculture and <laughs> decolonizing agriculture and, and future food webs and food, system, uh, food systems. And uh, beyond that, we're also doing a book. I'm doing a book now on cooperative agriculture. I've done another mini book on kind of the history of farming in the United States, again, through that indigenous lens of how to re-indigenize people-centered food systems. And the last thing is that no matter where you are in the world, if you want to support my community, especially the people who've been left behind by the Farm to Table movement, we have a mutual aid program where people at this point, I guess in several countries, including the United States, donate money to a pool that we use to grow food, to give food away to food, uh, food aid organizations, food pantries, uh, community fridges, aid organizations that are helping people with everything from domestic violence to their immigration status being kind of iffy and looking at the threat of deportation. So you can also contribute to that at sylvanaqua.com. Thank you so much. 350. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> We're, we're trying to do the mutual aid thing where it's like lots and lots and lots of people donating a tiny amount of money and 350 just happens to be the amount of money where if like, I don't know, 3,000 people or so donated, then we could get our program funded without anybody really noticing that the money was even gone from their wallets. So yeah, 350, if you can. <laughs> if, if you can. <laughs> Chris, thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun. All right, buddy. I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. 